Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lumen Industries Radio. This is a Magnum Talks podcast where we cover the Apple Plus TV show Severance. I'm your host, Leah. I'm here. I'm joined by my co-host, Spencer. Spencer, how are you today? I feel like the show is responding to any even vague concerns or criticism I have about it with this utter banger of an episode. You know, I feel like when things get tense, I have a tendency to try to calm everything down. So you notice how my intro is really like relaxed and chill. Relaxed I'm trying to like and calm. get everybody just relaxed after this episode of absolutely wild television. Yeah, episode four, real game changer in the Severance series, I would say. For me, it's when the show became a different thing. It became like, oh, all right, there's like action sequences and it's going to be broader than just these couple hallways and these people's daily mundane activities and like vague ethical questions, right? Like it's going to get bigger in scope than that. Um, what did you feel about the episode? Did you like it? It was something for everyone. I mean, there was action. There was drama. There was intense emotional scenes that had me at all on the verge of getting misty. There's romance, which I wasn't expecting, particularly between those two characters. The, intri- the intrigue is only continuing. The mystery only continues to broaden. The wheels within wheels are turning in directions I never even pondered. It's exciting. It's interesting. It's intriguing. And all of that wonderful combination that quality writing can give you. Okay, so we've already had a couple people write in and proclaim that you are not you are not following week by week that you have skipped ahead or at minimum you've read on Wikipedia some things. No, so I need you. I, I well, uh, the, the, that's what people seem to think is that maybe you in searching for I don't know character names to do your notes might have like read ahead in Wikipedia. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the floor to uh, address the these these allegations now to all of the Mangum Talks listeners. Spencer, are you in fact, like you do on the Harry Potter podcast, are you reading ahead? No, and I don't on the Harry Potter podcast either. And I'm so utterly offended by being criticized in this way persistently now across podcasts that I'm not even like pulling up character lists. I haven't even gone on the Wikipedia page for this show. The only thing I'm operating from is the Severance Wiki. They have just for each episode, they just have a perfect transcript of each episode. That is the only thing I pull up for each episode and not ahead for the entire show. Because I am stubbornly determined to make my opinions on the show unassailable. Okay. <clears throat> well, uh, fair enough. I mean, uh, you know, if that's what you say, that's what you say. Hey, how about this? I got an idea for the podcast. Could you call me Mr. Terry or Mr. Lee and I call you Spencer L? Spencer L? Like, you're Spencer L and I'm, I'm, Mr., I'm Mr. Lee. How about that? Can we do that? Like, we're badging and looming? Yes, Mr. Lee, and thank you again for the 1,000 opportunities I had the other day to apologize for what the person that I am. I'm afraid you don't believe it. <laughs> oh, what a show, man. This is this is really where I, I just fell in love with the show because I felt like, oh, man, they're good. They're willing to, like, stretch, take risk, move the plot a little bit. Really like it. This so is episode many ways. four. Yeah, this is episode four, the UUR. So we get the title from the book which uh, is the brother-in-law's book, which was left on Mark Mark's doorstep, which was taken to Lumen by Miss Coble, uh, read by Mr. Milchick, and left in a conference room, uh, I, I, which comes I love, up this episode. I love the little red book. It's going to inspire communist revolution inside the Lumen world. <laughs> I know, isn't it perfect? There's, there's so many things. Like they, don't, they are not afraid, and it happens multiple times in this episode. If they have a nail and they have a hammer, they will hit it. Like, they don't mind being a little on the nose about things. No, no, no. They're perfectly fine to put the nail all the way over there so you can see it coming and then walk with a measured pace towards it with a hammer in hand to hit it. And it's 
glorious. It, it's a proper thriller in that kind of sense where it doesn't matter if you know the bomb's under the table. If anything, it's better to know that the bomb's under the table. It sets the, 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 you know, the interest and the drama and the anticipation of the scene. Yeah, completely agree. All right, so this is a Mangum Talks podcast. If you enjoy our stuff, you like listening to Spencer and I gab, talk about television shows, talk about movies, you can go to mangumtalks.com, check out all your st- all our stuff, or you can go to your favorite podcast platform, type in Mangum Talks. Uh, that is the keywords. You just type in Mangum Talks in your favorite podcast platform. You'll get all our stuff. Hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, uh, could you go to your favorite podcast platform, rate and review us, please? That really, really helps. Uh, we don't ask for much. You get no ads on this podcast. We ask for nothing other than your time and maybe just a little bit of effort to rate and review us. Uh, I look at all that stuff. It means the means a lot to Spencer and I. We really like seeing the the, the fans engage and it moves us up the rankings, right? It moves us up so that more and more people can can listen. And that's really the goal with what we're doing here, right? This is a over year a year over a year old show, right? We're covering season one to prep for season two, right? So we want to build the audience to get ready for season two. Now, speaking of season two, if you haven't heard, all of Hollywood quit working. Um, <laughs> Except for, the studio hits. They're still yeah, working. Yeah, which for pretty good reasons, I believe. But nonetheless, they are uh, the writer strike, actor strike, both, t- both first time both are striking since 1960. I think that will affect season two of Severance. So I think that season two of Severance going to be delayed until that that strike can get resolved the thing that will not be delayed however from what i'm hearing is the season two of house of the dragon and spencer and i do Mm -hmm. cover that show over on the podcast feed pod of the dragon so uh we'll get that in the spring at a bare minimum but we are laying the groundwork for season two here but in order to get to season two we have to review season one spencer are you ready to dive into episode four the you you are so very ready Okay, so I will lead the recap every week, always knocking it out. Recap, since we will chime in with witty anecdotes, comments, witticisms, probably some predictions that he absolutely did not, did not look up on Wikipedia, did not. I have nothing but my word here. Absolutely did not. And then we'll award best line of the episode. I and I alone, a member of that segment. Spencer, however, will award me nominees every week. Then we will award Employee of the Week. Interesting Employee of the Week discussion this week. Ah. I, I, I'm going to offer Hardly. two. I'm going to offer two for two entirely different reasons. And then we will end with America's favorite segment, Spencer's questions of the week, which I will listen. And I usually do one of three things: I will acknowledge it's a question, I will answer part of the question, or I will answer all of the question. Which C C happens very rarely. I, I do love from a purely you know dictation level when you acknowledge. Well, yes, Spencer, that is a question. I see. I feel just so recognized. Yeah, my wife likes that part too. She started doing that around the house where I'll, I'll, I'll ask something. She's like, "That's a question." I can't get mad because I'm doing it to you every week on the podcast. All right, episode four, the UUR. Let's jump into it. We start with a Foundation commercial. Spencer, what do you know about the show Foundation, the Isaac Asimov novels? I've never actually read the novels. I know they're incredibly important in terms of the science fiction. You know lexicon of literature I was one of our friends has read them and is quite fond of them but other than just that kind of background i really don't have much of a connection to them fucking show rules man it's so good and it makes me question if i am an authoritarian like it, 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 there's a chance <laughs> that like i actually really like big government and like empires and like maybe maybe i'm a palpatine fan i didn't know it until this show don't we refer to you as the god emperor of certain of the segments of our podcast it's all starting to come together, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. I love Jesus. it. 
I, I really do. As I watch that show Foundation, I end up rooting for Empire. And I don't even know why. But anyway, fun show. I recommend it to anybody who has some time on their hands. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture to guess uh, about six to eight months from now, people are going to be looking for television shows to watch. Right. So you might want to watch the first two seasons of Foundation. It's really good. All right. The previously on, we get Peter, uh, Petey. Uh, Mark's decision not to reintegrate the book from the brother-in-law, the UUR, Bert and Irv, optics and design. Those eggs, those eggs look like shit, which is Dylan's, <laughs> Thanks, Dylan. Dylan's anger at optics and design, Petey's health problems, his collapsing, um, Helly and her resignation request. She should see the Pepatuti wing. What are we, a dental company? Nelly, uh, Helly running. Uh-oh, Helly going to the break room. Fuck is that? That's the break room. So a little bit of the break room as we end the previously on. So we start with a warning about this containing images of self-harm, which, you know, like, not a joke. We joke a lot about on this podcast. If you have problems with that type of uh, visuals of people harming themselves, this, is, this episode's not for you because it, it really does come on strong toward the end. And I saw that warning. And I would never want to diminish it, but I've seen it seen it on shows where what was ultimately depicted was, by my standards, fairly mild. Like, or even was in a comedic kind of way. Not this this one. is not in any sense of the word. This is to an eleven. Not, not not what's depicted, but more what's threatened, and it's deadly serious. Yeah. That, so that's maybe like something to notice about the show is that it's a it's a serious show. It's a this is a real television, and if they tell you something, like they give you a warning, like. Heed the warning. It's it's real. Just a so, bit. Just uh, we open up with Helly in the break room, and she does not sound so good, nor look good. She looks maybe like wiped, tired, like out of it. And we see Milchik getting another readout that he's looking at. We see her bloodstained bandage, and he says, I'm afraid you still don't mean it. 7.15. This is our 715th time saying it. Uh, no, no, uh, 259th, from what, from what I wrote down. It is 7.15 on the clock. Oh, it's 7.15. Oh, well, she ends up doing it like a thousand times, so it doesn't matter or whatever. Very much so. She is clearly already burned out. And what's interesting from this scene, he does, unless it's all just theater, which it could be the case, he is reading something. They're treating it perspective as scientific. I'll tell you my opinion, um, and I'll tell you the opinion of me as I watch this episode. I thought that he was getting some sort of real readout of like a lie detector type machine I, I didn't think this was fake the readout that he was getting i mean it might it might be bunk science but they, he's tre- he's treating it real and to him it, it is real it, it's again it's the fine line of the show lie detectors in real life are bullshit every television show loves them they are utter bullshit even the original inventor was horrified that they were being used for lie detecting purposes actually um but in this universe i don't know maybe they actually have to have some element of lie detector they seem to break her down to the point that by the end she would have said whatever was necessary to get the hell out of that room. So maybe it is accurately reading, accurately reading her in some shape or form up to that point. Yeah, lights sort of dim. We see a tape stop. Milchik gets the tape out, stands up and says, we'll try again in the morning. Cut back to uh, Helly and Milchik walking out. Helly looks at her cubicle and everyone is gone. Milchik takes her to the elevator. She gets in, camera sort of far away. See Damari Heli, then it opens right back up. She looks down. She's dressed a little different and says, fuck me. This show does horror so well. It's like, this isn't like monster reach out kind of horror, but that's it's just scary. that human condition of just being trapped in her, in her form. I hadn't pondered the break room could continue beyond one day. Not something that even crossed my mind. And then just, again, the... 
the the way they so beautifully depict what the life of these people is like of where there's no transition there's no thing outside of here it goes up it goes back down and the pain continues it's delightfully nightmarish and I think they know that, and that's why you're getting a lot, especially in the elevator. They yes. love to give you first-person shots so that you can imagine what it would be like leaving work eyes. leaving work at the end of the day, and then just, whoop, you're, bam. And it's mm-hmm. like, snap of the fingers, you're back, and it's eight more hours. Your Audi left. My day just continued. She's back in the break room. I read it 300 times yesterday, 259. Uh, again, please now. She asks what the hell the voice in the background is. She starts to read it again. Forgive me. For the harm I have caused this world, none may atone for my actions, but me and only in me shall there stay and live on. She's crying and struggling. I really am sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. No paraphrasing. Again. Whew. It's so cold. It's so cold. And again, the, the cinematography in this episode is off the charts. The show's always been very well filmed, very interesting blocking, wonderful artwork. But just like the shot of just looking at Milchik's eyes, perfectly framed by that transparent, like, glass lens that's between them or something, or maybe it's in just, like, the flaming of light between them, is wonderfully haunting and intimidating. You are as cowed as she is by just the looming, almost godlike image of him staring down at you. We get some intense music, and we back up away from the break room, and then we get the opening. Same opening every week. This this opening mm-hmm. doesn't change. Spencer doesn't like that piece of it. He likes an opening that tweaks a little bit every week. <laughs> Again, if it's going to be st- same from the beginning, I'm with you. Don't, 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 you know, disappoint me later with giving me some changes now and then not keeping it going into the future. The red of his outfit is now hit in this episode in a way I like. Where again, we talked about how red very much stand out, and now the red is coming into the world in a very much an, an outside, sub, uh, you know, subverting influence kind of way. We hear a cell phone buzzing. Dark room, but the little phone is lighted up. Mark picks it up, and we see many missed calls from a blocked number. Did you see that? Did you it, catch it? Did. Like, how do you get calls from a blocked number? Uh, you've blocked it. I don't know how you would block it. Fun point there, yes. Uh, it didn't make any sense. I didn't really think about that. Because I'd written off that it was his daughter. It starts with a J. What's her name? Jody? Joni? Uh, no, Junie? Uh, it's something like that, yeah. We'll get I'll, there. I'll, we'll, get there. we'll get there. I always assumed the calls were coming from her, but a... We find out in this episode she knows he's dead, so she's not calling it that way. And B, it's a block number forcing its way in. It's got to be from Loman, because otherwise who would have the power to just force a blocked call to still go through? See, I think that you're supposed to think, as a casual watcher, that it's his daughter. But I, I agree. I think the, the little... It wouldn't have blocked it otherwise. <laughs> exactly. I think the little detail that it's a block number that's still getting through shows that uh-huh. it's some sort of power or something. Um, we see Mark hide seen- the phone. Then we see an overview. Uh, it's a panning of the toilet stalls, and we see Mark sitting in there with the map. This is the map that he found behind Petey's um, picture picture frame that was on Petey's desk, and we see a close-up on the map. So here's the things I was able to, to generate from the close-up of the map. Mind is at the top mm-hmm. of it. The word mind. Which I interpreted as being symbolic. Then we see we are here because we're not all there. That's over to the left. Mm-hmm. To the right, some people might live here, and it looks like he's drawing like little houses. Very much a little stereotypical little houses, which, as Mark brings up this episode, the fact that around the marges things seem to get a little bit less realistic or obviously map-driven, it, it feeds into some confusion about what we should interpret literally. Team building, bottom right. Perpetuity wing, bottom. We know those. Right next to the perpetuity wing is something called Coil of Doom. 
Yeah, that was very much. Is this a D and D map that we've just stumbled across right now? Is that the is 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 that you know the dungeon artifact we have to recover? O and D. Is there a minotaur? Bottom left. Wellness. Top right. Or top left, I think, is wellness. Disclaimer at the bottom for research only, not for scale. And there's your map. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very interesting what PD drew, decided to write down. You know, I think from what we know so far, I think it's a pretty fair assumption, maybe, or at least maybe something I want to assume is that PD drew this map after he was. I'm going to say unsevered. I use Mark word, Mark's word, unsevered, which PD doesn't like. What, what he, he was reintegrated or something reintegrated. like that? Reintegrated, yeah. He said unsevered. Uh, unsevered is not a word. Yeah, I think he was doing this after 100%. he had been reintegrated, I think. 100%, which may explain a certain degree of uh, madness that may be seeping into this based on what we saw of his state of existence after reintegration, that we should consider ourselves lucky that there's even this level of detail and precision attached to this when he was only ever partially in any one moment or the next. Mark walks out and Irv greets him. It's past 1100 and hell, he's been in the break room since yesterday. Mark just says, Mark just what, says okay. <clears throat> what time do they get in? They get in at like 9 or 9.15, that little staggered kind of entrance? I think it's like 9.15 and they leave at 5.15, I think. Right. So she has started her day and already she's two hours into the break room. Mm-hmm. I wonder if as department chief you feel you should check on her progress. Dylan quickly points out that Mark doesn't have the power to do that. Irv suggests he can. Dylan, he's not going to. In comes Bert. And Dylan immediately grabs his stapler and makes it a weapon. He has been thinking about this. If he had to have a weapon somewhere, that's how he's going to do it. Staple gun. He so fast turns to that. I'm 100% with you. This guy is pondered out. Okay, guy comes in, not standing next to the copier. What do I grab? I grab the stapler and I use it like a gun. I flip it over and use it like a gun. So Then we get... I'll tell you, we got some heavy... like. I just enjoy that in, in an imminently, I think, I mean, there are parts that do border on absurd within the genre absurd, but this is a, intended to be. but this is a serious television show, right? These people, people put real thought into making this, but they just let Christopher Walken kind of be Christopher Walken in the middle of it, which is also enjoyable. I, I don't know. It, it's, and I'm not sure it always strikes the right balance, the, the same tone as the rest of the show, but I enjoy it. I feel like every actor, particularly male actors, reaches a point in their career of where they're being hired to be themselves or be the ro- the overarching role they've now accumulated over the course of, this, of their career. Christopher Walken is hired to be Christopher Walken, and so he is doing so wonderfully here. I'm so sorry to interrupt. We met the other day. <laughs> it's such I'm a voice. optics and design of Irving. Irv greets him and asks why he's there casually. Dylan, exactly how the wet fuck do you know where this office is? Boy, he really is. Goes Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing, though. After what Irving saw, after what Irving saw this episode, are we with fucking Dylan? Are we, should we be a little skeptical about this in design? Uh, well, everything that Dylan has said is incorrect in the literal sense. Well, but sure. I now have suspicions in a way I didn't think I was going to have. Are but it's got truthiness. Guys- it's a it has, Stephen Colbert thing. It's got truth in this. <laughs> it has that. Now Now there is a <laughs> feeling of unease that otherwise I lacked. That these guys are not what they are represented to no. be. I, either just like as an organization understood within these Lumen units, but even how they're just presenting themselves is fundamentally inaccurate. Which raises so many both internal and external questions attached to this. I don't even know where to start. 
It's it's something, man. Uh, he he stands up and starts moving toward Bert. Mark shouts him down. My predecessor, Alice K. We're still about to staple him. Probably. He was going to attack. I think he was literally going to attack. And you know what I enjoy about it is that he was. Dylan is so kind of off on his own that he was literally about to attack Bert physically, mm-hmm. but respects the chain of command. And when Mark told him to stop, he stopped. It's like, <laughs> it's always so hard to figure out what's on Dylan's radar and what isn't. I, 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 put, Dylan is one of my two nominees for employee of the episode for moments like this. Guy's oh, yeah. always working, always doing his job. But right here, he has grabbed a stapler to defend his team. But the moment his boss says stop, he sits back down and waits for the command. That's that's an employee right there. Yeah. My predecessor, Alice K, came here once, <laughs> stood at the summit, and she left directions. This is a great line by Dylan that was so quick, and I, I probably didn't catch it the first time I watched it. But as soon as he says, and she left directions, he says, give us them in reverse. <laughs> the life away of, okay, let's call bullshit on this right now. Give me, prove to me right now that what you just said was true by doing it in a way that you just can't go from road. Go. Yes. So fucking... Well, I took it as uh, he wants to be able to get to them. Uh, There was one of the two ways I took it. It It's either A, he's testing him, or B, I need the opportunity to do a counterattack right now. I will have staplers in both hands ready. (laughs) Yeah, and and maybe a paper cutter, too. I've got a a young woman with a paper cutter. We're going to ask about the paper cutter. I have questions about whether they all knew it was there or not. Mark says it's okay, Irving. I kept thinking about what you said and about being excited for the new handbook totes. Maybe you were kidding or teasing. Irving, no, not at all. But okay, because I've been fretting, though, because you, you mentioned the anticipation could distract from your work, which was opposite of my intent. So what's interesting to me is that he's... He, he, he comes under the flag of peace, right? Yes, 100%. But think about the point he's making here. I don't want to distract from your work at all. So I'm just going to give these to you now so that you right. can continue to I, work un, un, like unabated, unbroken, right? Like, which he's already doing, right? It's, it's a constant work, right. but it's interesting that that was, it was, it was wrapped in, let me help you do more work. It's a fascinating perspective because he seems to be recognizing that there is an inherent separation that's required of us. And the fact that we interacted in that kind of unsanctioned, uncontrolled manner was an inherently destabilizing element. So in understanding of that, I'm trying to restore an element of balance by fixing what I otherwise inserted into the mix. And this it's a delightful, like a loyal drone kind of way of looking at this. It, it was, it's like, you get the feeling that Bert and Irv are peas in a pod, breaking protocol in some ways. Although you, when you see what Irv sees at the end of the episode, you wonder if this is all just some test for Irving. But um, it, it it is interesting that even though they're maybe stepping outside of the norm, it's still wrapped in how can we continue to do good work for Lumen and the Kier stuff. And they're 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 reading the handbook to each other later. There is a moment here, this line that we get heavy Christopher Walken. We go, so I figured, heck, did you catch how he said heck? Very much he just, the classic Walken. It was heck. like he went to like a fucking twelve with the heck. Yep. Bring them over now, so that way it won't be on your mind. Irv lights up. You brought pre-release handbook totes for us, and Irv moves toward him. I love the little mutual smile they share there. It's like, this is like a fan getting a pre-release kind of copy of some top-of-the-line merchandise kind of thing. You are now the the coolest kid in camp in all kinds of ways. And I love that little kind of shared moment that only the two of them would have with respect to this. this The speech these offers is loyal loyal, corporate drone. And it is that. 
But I also love the subversive kind of element that the two of them are sharing attached to, to it. They've got their cover, and they've got their building relationship, too. Yeah, the first time I watched it, I thought that that Bert and Irving have like a, a connection, romantic or not romantic, but it he's he's hiding it with this for the good of the company thing. Yes. That's the first read I had on it. Um, Bert says, it seemed like the right thing. I know your time is valuable. Dylan, okay, well, you can drop him on the desk. Long hike back to O&D. <laughs> Get going now, please. Thank you. I'll, if you're if you're really good, I won't shoot you in the back with the stapler. Irv is smiling at Bert, right? Uh, but I wanted to extend an invitation. Again, I know you you, you work so hard. If an informal tour of O and D sounds re- refreshing, I'd personally be happy to offer that to Irvin or any one of you. Directions on the front bag reversed. So he did get the directions reversed. <laughs> yep. That Dylan wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, Dylan just says hard pass. He's not into it. He's not going to go for the, the tour of O&D. Bert says, okay, Irving, thank you, Bert. Thank you. And he leaves. I find it interesting that Mark obviously is not in Dylan's camp or Irving's camp when it comes to his thoughts about O&D. But he's still obviously intimidated by them. Like, he's still caught up in all the rumors and all the assumptions, all the mythology they built about what O&D can be. And that's demonstrated here if we're the only thing he says in this entire conversation is to stop Dylan from, you know, stapling uh, Bert. Otherwise, he's silent and kind of cowed throughout all of this. Then we see Irv getting his jacket on, and Mark says, like, it feels a little soon to take him up on it. You know, I kind of got the impression that, like, Mark can tell that Irv and Bert have a connection and that there's maybe, like, a little, like, flirtation, maybe? And it felt almost like like if you were single, man, like if, if Spencer mm-hmm. was single and, you know, you went on the first date and then you're like, I'm going to call her. And I'm like, no, man, it seems a little soon to call her. Like we're like, <laughs> we're trying to like work it out. I kind of felt, I got that vibe that that's what Mark was doing. He was like trying, it wasn't just a work thing. It was like, he was like in the trenches with his buddy. Like, I don't know, man, it feels a little soon to maybe take him up on this. I- I'm with you. Let the shipping begin. I'm here for it. Let's bring, let's, let's bring these two old dudes together. It, well, it, I mean, it, it's happening. I mean, it's straight up that it's also a certain element, too, that I don't think he knows how to take Irving acting out of character. Because Irving's been these, you know, as consistent oh, yeah, as the evening sure. star kind of thing. Except for the naps. 100%. So seeing him now leave work, take a break during the middle of the day, far longer than the average lunch break, I'm sure. Oh, for sure. And go, you know, on walkabout. Mark clearly doesn't know how to take this. Irv is going on about how it's absurd they'd ever visited him before. Kier's whole original vision saw us all working together. That was before an O&D started disemboweling people's bowels. Hey, uh, Dylan, question. question. Uh, Yes, right there, please. How else can you disembowel someone? Uh, I think disemboweling someone's bowels is about how one disembowels them. Unless you mean it metaphorically, of course. He's going for the literal disembowel. Feels a tad repetitive. Uh, you know, I just, maybe Dylan can work on the copy. Uh, he's usually such a good writer. It, it, it's his riverboat Audi that has, you know, the wonderful turns of phrase. He's, he's still struck. He's, he's trying to catch up with that outer influence. Delts for days, right? That's what you said last episode. <laughs> at, at laugh. Delts for days <laughs> and milfs, milfs till Monday. <laughs> delts for days. He feels bad for the, the milf husband. Irving calls it nonsense. He says, he'll be back by one. I'll be back by one. Dylan, he's going to die. They hear footsteps and Mark says, Irv, but it's Helly who walks in, shoulders slumped over. We get a stare off. How many times? 1,072. 
<gasps> I mean, all right. So, yeah. Question. Yeah. yeah. Is Milchik just the de facto fucking employee of the week for sitting there for that? I mean, like, I know this is this is literal torture for Heli. I got that. But man, that's boring for fucking Milchik. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, you've got to. I mean, every how many times do we say in the episode there's got to be a better way to do that? For that one employee that has to listen to you repeat the same damn thing over a thousand times, that's a certain element of torture on them too, isn't it? I don't care what element of true believer you are. That's just tedious. Uh, see, but this, see, this is the, this is the difference between like you work in private industry. I work, I work tangentially for the government, right? Like you're like, there's got to be a better way. And I'm like, no, 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 no. A person has to be there. There has to be a person <laughs> in the seat making sure this happens. It's just very boring for him, and he deserves a raise. Okay, uh, can't the person be there by Zoom? Does the person have to be physically present so as to verify oh, no. the final submission report that has to be sent in triplicate to the appropriate bureaucracy? There's not even Windows on these computers, much less fucking Zoom. Valid point. It, it's, it's, this is a DOS situation. Um, yeah, so Mark just looks at her with what seems like genuine sadness or pity. Dylan is astonished and Heli walks to her cube. We see Irv walking, following the directions. What about the voice behind the door? Crying baby, you mean? No, the mumbly guy. Interesting, because we heard that when she was going through like the last repetition that we saw of her. If we heard some kind of weird voice that was building up in the background, mumbly so, guy, yeah, so some mumbly angry dude. Now we know that it's different. different for each Dylan, person. Dylan gets a crying baby. Yeah, it, is this something that's in your own head? Is this just an element of madness that's seeping in? Are they playing something as some evil white noise so as to add to the insanity that you're just delving into here in this room? I don't know, but now I've got a thread to ponder. You think Dylan's got a, a young child at home and they're they're leveraging that? Well, with Mark making a tree at the end, I, the, the doors are open. I don't even know what could be what, what, what these little bits of outside hinting could be. Oh, we're going to get to that fucking greatest moment in fucking Apple TV Plus history. That was unbelievable. I, I, we had to pause and then rewatch it like two or three times to make sure, okay, that is indeed the tree, right? That was wonderful. Yeah, Mark cuts, uh, cuts them off and says they really aren't supposed to be talking about the break room. You know, the important thing is you apologized correctly. And now you're out. Correctly. Mark I don't trying know. To, I don't know. Mark's trying to be a company man here. He is trying to toe the company line. It it rings that kind of false of like someone doing an opening, opening day orientation but just reading off a script. I know, but like it is hard as a boss, right? Because like you you may want to talk. Like I'm sure that Mark just wants to sit and gab with Dylan 100%. and Helly. But I believe he's got to be in charge. I believe when he says later that he's trying to assume leadership of this group and steer them on the correct path so that people can stay out of the break room. I believe that. Like I what? think that's real. Hundred percent. Positions affect people and how they perceive things. Like to reference a song by and Fires we love to do, the white cloak changes a man. Being in a position of, man, of being a manager right here, he's trying to assume that mantle and what he expresses and probably even how he sees things is altered just due to the nature of assuming that position. But see, I'm, I guess maybe what I'm arguing is that, I like. first off, shout out to the quote. Love that fucking quote. I uh, adore it, yes. It's so good. But I, I guess maybe what I'm arguing is, is kind of slightly the opposite, that he is one of their friends. And mm-hmm. he is trying to leverage whatever role he can whatever thing he can do to help them like it, it he I, I when he's saying 
I am trying to, you know, move things around, make make everything right so that we stay out of the break room so that things roll smoothly here. That's something he's doing because he cares about them. I think that's true, but I think that we also do need, I think there also just need to be acknowledged, at least as my perspective, I don't think Mark is a true believer, but I think he wants to be. I think he wants that feeling of comfort and just letting go of free will that he found for a period in this place with PD and with everything else associated with it. I think he, he even says here in this conversation later on that he kind of longs for that. So I think it has a certain element of, I am indeed trying to protect you. But there's this element of, he does want things to go back to the way they were, because he did find an element of peace in that. He does seem like a path of least resistance guy. Um, Dylan says, um, what you have to do is trick the machine by thinking about something you're really sorry about. So I try to imagine my Audi's love made with a milf or two, which is obviously badass, but I do pity the husbands. I, I love that we got a little insight into Helly, how Helly can hang in this conversation. She didn't cringe. She just she nods. Voice. She just nods. She's like, okay. She's getting used to Dylan. Yeah, it's it's interesting that she can kind of she can kind of roll with that. I'm not sure many people, man or woman, could uh, man, woman or non-binary, could deal with fucking. Um, yeah, you know. So I just like I like to fuck a lot of mills, you know, and then like I feel sir, bad for sir. it's like whoa, whoa, man. Sir, we don't use that kind of language here. We use love made from here on out. As many opportunities <laughs> as possible, love made is now the diction of choice. Yeah, I don't know. Man. Dylan's a, Dylan's an interesting cat to try to keep up with. I think. Uh, cut to Bert. Love made, who uh, seems to be maybe struggling with the directions or Irving uh, struggling with the directions. Um, and every hall's the same. Uh, Mark says, "Hey, break room sucks, but that's why we have protocols and procedures, so we don't end up there. You'll learn. I this promise. is your theory." Yeah, I honestly think he's just really, he has had the any version of Mark has had more emotive reactions to Heli being threatened with and having to go to the break room than anything else I've seen so far out of him. He's, he's very much an empathetic person. He's very much a caring person as much as he tries to, you know, hide that behind the boss label at various times. Not disputing that in any way and that shines through. I think it's just not the complete picture of why Mark is here and the, the conflicted feelings we get about Mark, both as the innie and the outie, when it comes to what being in this Lumen setting, what that effect, why he's there and what effect it has on him. Helly is left there with Dylan. She looks over at him. seems like Helly and er, uh, Dylan are kind of becoming buddies this episode. Cut to Irv, who I'm does sorry. arrive at Optics and Design. Irv says hello a couple times. Finally, we hear a female voice. Who's that? Irvin says, it's Irving B. from Macro Data Refinement. We met in the hall the other day. She just looks at him and says, Bert's over there by shelf six. Don't touch anything. As Bert says here in a minute, her name is apparently Felicia? Or Fe- Felicia. Felicia. I think it's Felicia, and I think that Christopher Walken reads that as Felicia. <laughs> 100%. I'm willing to believe that's why I mispronounced that right there. Yeah, I think that's it. Because he does say it as Felicia, but it's, it's, it's Felicia. I think. Um, mm-hmm. So... Um, cuts Bert showing Irv some specifics about the envelopes. Big envelopes can handle an appendix reissue, but of course, we ship the hallway pieces in frames. So much to remember. Felicia and I made two. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's easier than whatever you MDR kids get up to all day. Irv says, I can only imagine what it's like when the new art comes in. I mean, you see it before everyone. They, you know, I recently got back into playing the card game Magic the Gathering. Good on you. A lot of fun. Really enjoy it. What, what um, deck are you playing now? Uh, white green token life, a lot 100%. of fun. Hundred percent, love white green back in the day. White green, a lot of fun. Um, it is kind of like if they're they're gonna do like an, a, a new expansion set of magic, and like some guy gets the 
the jump on what the new cards would be. Like, this is the same tone <laughs> that Irving has. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe you get to see this before the rest of us. Which, you know, as the thing is, is that like on the face of that, that seems super pathetic. But it's like, it's actually this is not. World. This is his entire life. Like, this really isn't pathetic. Like, and I, I actually wonder if I would be like in that situation, like super into the art. Maybe I would. I, I probably would really obsess about what was in that fucking vending machine. I know that. I know I would obsess about that. It's 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 all all about the beats, man. Get, you gotta, get, gotta get the beats. The best way to best thing in the vending machine, hundred percent. Uh, meat. I, just no. The meat still scares me. Meat. To non non described, <laughs> just meat. I, I'm jerky. assuming squirrel meat. at that point. <laughs> a little now, possum. Got a little possum. I, I'm straight there with you, though. I think the show does this very well. Of where these are people that are otherwise completely deprived of anything resembling meaning, of anything resembling something to assign value to, and given the handbook, given what they're otherwise exposed to, they've now built a culture around those, and we see that most represented in the form of Irving, given that he's the one that's most desperately searching for such. Uh, so I'm going to, to Dragon Con next month. Mm-hmm. Atlanta. And, yeah, it's going to be great. But like, I feel like. When you're among, like, other folks at, like, a con like that with a shared interest, you have this some version of this conversation, right? Where Irv says he cried when he when you guys put up the youthful convalescence of Kier, and Bert is like, no, 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 you didn't. And he's like, I really did, I really did. And then they fight, like, finally Bert figures out that Irv isn't making fun of him, that he yes. is as much of a... And I use, this, I, use this word, I use this word as positively as possible, like, a geek about this art. Yeah. Like... And once they're in that brotherhood together, then Bert's like, oh, let me show it to you. Come on, come in the back. I still have it. It, 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 it. This moment, I said out loud, oh, come on, guys, just kiss. Little did I know. Oh, they were, man. I wasn't actually anticipating that. I was making sure, oh, look, they're getting along so well. Look at you shipping. Look at you. I feel dirty. So I blame you. I blame myself for introducing that concept to you, and now it's bleeding back over. Oh, I am the ship captain on this podcast for sure. <laughs> I am absolutely this. I'm the skipper. Two um, points ahead, sir. Earth says it was only up for a month or two, but man, what a month. Bert looks at him and says, come here. Uh, so once the hall art uh, has been cycled through all the departments, um, it ends up back here. They're both excited. Irv asks where Felicia is, and Bert casually says that she went on a supply run. Mm. That part made me skeptical because it didn't. First off, what, a supply run. It seems like everything's delivered to you. Where is she going to get supplies? And he, the way he said it, so I don't know. I felt like there was a you, when you play a spot the lie with people. Mm-hmm. That's where I said, boom, that's the lie, right there. That's where that's where I would have banged the the gavel. Didn't think about it at the moment, but you're right. It's very much a, and I don't want you to ask you more questions on that kind of thing. Yes. It's like, oh, well, she, she's gone. Let's let's, foc- let's focus on the youthful convalescence of Kier right now. Which, admittedly, a lot of the rest of the art has not been my cup of tea. This one, not bad. Thought this, one, thought I this think painting was I, okay. I've scoured the internet. I think I can find you the youthful convalescence of Kier. I think I can get a print. I do not need a print of the youthful I think convalescence of Kier. No, no, I'm good. I do not Spencer, need that on my wall. Spencer L., Mr. Lee says. <laughs> yes, Mr. Lee. <laughs> Lee. Mr. Lee, I must ask, if I put up a picture of the youthful convalescence of here in my <laughs> office at work, is this going to be an HR event? No, but you there's nothing there's nothing you can do to make me happier. I don't think in the world. I don't I, you you can get, yeah, there's nothing you can do. If you send me 
picture, don't do not do like you know eight by twelve kind of picture of this. I'll thing, make it reasonable. I want this to happen. I'll make it reasonable. If you make it a reasonable size, I will put this up in the wall in my office until I'm told to take it down. Oh man! All right, that's happening, and we're gonna update it on the podcast. We're gonna let people I, I, know about this. We, I will take a picture. We will post it. It will be up there, and it will remain. Oh man, that's it. That's absolutely gonna happen. Little side quest for the podcast we've got now. Uh, Bert pulls up one and says, "Voila! Let not weakness live in your veins. Cherish workers, drown it inside you." This is the first of many different quotes of, yeah, I yeah. think, the handbook, and there is a biblical sort of tinge to this writing it's it's a strange type of writing and uh you said it reminded you a lot of like um scientology stuff there's a lot of dialectics that i'm feeling in this l ron hubbard is bleeding through into this and given that this is a presumably filmed in about hollywood eh, you know there'd be a certain element of exposure among the actors and the writers when it comes to that kind of subject yeah let's not leave weakness in your veins shared workers cherished workers drown it inside you rise up from your deathbed and sally forth more perfect for the struggle so they're quoting the lines back and forth to each other now and what's interesting too is that we get very much it was implied in one of the last couple episodes and i think it's made much more clear here there's what the handbook says but then there's what Kier said and those don't perfectly line up which is interesting that there is an element of the words have changed and been altered with the times and some people particularly Bert, like the original edition best so we're not always sure where the quotes are coming from, particularly when they're coming out of Bert's mouth. I feel like he, I feel like he, I think that's a great point. And I feel like he lets us know that later in the episode that like when they, mm-hmm. like these, this is clearly two, two versions of the same quote that they're, they're going back and forth with. And I think one is first edition. One is like sixth edition. Right. And like Irv has the the later edition. I, th- I think that's how we can interpret the, them when they are. Doing a little tête-à-tête with the with the text, right? I'm more of a two point five um, guy myself, but I understand where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I I really like the uh, the Ice Age expansion. Oh, sorry, I'm so <laughs> Um Yeah, I can't I can't believe you 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 have this. Irv moves his moves his hand over. Bert moves his hand over, and they hold hands. Oh, look at the two of these guys coming together. Uh, this is not like my it. theory. This is a theory that my girlfriend offered. I cannot take any credit for this, but one of the things she pondered is, wouldn't it be interesting if the two of them are actually together in the real world? Hadn't pondered that. Don't think it's true, but it'd be an interesting little thought to see them kind of come together in one world and the other. So it, it would seem convenient, but if they're doing enough of this, like hiring severed people, having severed people interact, eventually it's going to happen. Like, eventually there will be two severed people that are interacting as innies that actually do interact on the outside. As much as it seems like they try to prevent some of that, I I think it's going to happen eventually. Yeah, I don't think they're married anyway. I think that would mess up the experiment too much and that wouldn't fit into what we've seen before about how Lumen works. But if while, you know, Irv is out there dancing as he does so well, the two of them meet meet each other at a club, who knows? Maybe Maybe they've had a connection on both sides of the Lumen elevator. Irv turns around and says, I'm sorry, what time is it? I have to go. So he gets nervous, obviously, and he goes off. Um, then we see Helly walk up behind Mark. Mark turns around and says, hey, Helly. And she says she got to 4%. Mark tries to encourage her. She's lukewarm. He tells her, great work. And he turns around. She sits down. Cut back to Irv, who is walking back down the hallways. We move over and see more walking from Irv. Irv comes into a conference room. I believe the we've seen, conference room. I believe we've seen Milchik in this conference room. And then he... Uh, steps out and looks out the door. 
Is this also the, the conference room where they... It isn't because there's a glass wall, so it's not the conference room where they wake up. Unless, unless the, the walls no, change, which no, is always possible too. I don't think it's the same. I think there's two conference rooms, right? I, think I agree. I think this is the conference room that Milchik uses to talk to Koble and others. And then there's the, 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 the like lab rat, like wake up on the table thing. I, I, I've been pondering this when it came to this scene of where Milchik was reading the book there and then he left it there because things with Heli. Um, I, in terms of whether this was intentional or not by Milchik, I'm going with unintentional. That I don't think he's like, I don't see him as an, as, as an agent. I don't see him as a Manchurian candidate that is in some way being put into this program, either intentionally or not, to subvert it. I think he honestly just had a human moment and forgotten left the book there because lots of distracting things were happening. I enjoy how in a pretzel the show has you that you're what you're that you're even questioning if he forgot that or not. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think he forgot it too. I, I, I don't. I, I probably didn't think about it as long as you did, but yes, I also think he forgot it. Yes. I, I'm just looking at this going. Okay, Milchik's the guy who runs this ship. We haven't seen any kind of big mistakes in his part other than like the general lack of resources or mistakes everyone's been making with respect to Lumen that we've been commenting on. This is a clear, obvious, serious error. Yeah, but it's at least at present, lacking any other evidence, I'm going with, man, just fucked up. Things happen. Now, the only bit of evidence we have that Milchik might want to help the Innies a little bit is when... Helly said, look, you, you, you seem like a reasonable... He said, "Not we're not right now, Which you Which you highlighted last episode. He also seems very invested in terms of them on an individual basis. Maybe there's a certain element of Stockholm Syndrome that's going that's going into play here. Or, you know, what was it? Um, the Stanford experiment of like, was the prisoners and the guards and they started to assume roles or whatever else. Or, um, But I, I still think what we're meant to believe at this point is that he honestly just forgot it. I think he honestly forgot it. But I don't think... That that means, I don't think that the fact that he honestly forgot that, right, that it wasn't a plant, means that Milchik isn't at least somewhat sympathetic to the Innies, right? Because I do think he Agreed. is somewhat sympathetic Agreed. to the Innies. But I think that that How is not. But I think that that is coming out through his open discussion with Koble about reintegration, which is obviously a you know, a topic not to touch, right, from the board, right? I, the fact that he's willing to openly discuss that with Cobell, I, I think means that he's he, he's more sympathetic to the innies. He realizes there's more to this than what is being pushed down from the top at Lumen. And it makes me wonder if he uh if he if he may be somebody they could rely on if if they, they wanted to make some moves, right? Like that that because I feel like if he was like a, a simple Lumen drone the second Cobell brought up reintegration, he'd go, no, no, no such thing. No, the, bo- the board has declared such a thing does not exist. Therefore, it does not exist. Now, it, you, you can't be the guy that's there in the art that's there in Antarctica filming the penguins. And even if you're not, you know, required to not intervene to protect the penguins, you're still going to still feel sympathy for the penguins when the leopard seal comes up. That's just how human nature is. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I, I th- maybe he was his fucking. So bored to tears from hearing that shit for a thousand times that he his mind was he was just blank. He was making <laughs> mistakes is, left and right. This is true. He has had his like nonstop time from the moment he left that book there, just dedicated to the purpose of dealing with Heli, of completely breaking their experiment or not. Who knows? Do we think? Do we think Milchik is severed? I assume that Milchik is not, because we've seen him contact people in and out. 
Do you think? My, but well, he's not. He's a, if he is whatever Kobel is, and they are certainly if they are severed, not severed in the same way as Mark and Helly and Dylan. But that, in fairness, doesn't mean that they're not severed. Just they're they're not severed in a way we presently understand. Have we seen Milchik leave? We have never seen Milchik outside of the ground floor. We've just seen him interact with the world outside of it. But we do know in this episode that he's sent to diagnostics. I don't know where that is, but she implies that it's up somewhere. So that would suggest that he can leave. Well, he can leave the floor, but I'm I'm wondering, can he leave the the facility? Because Petey, Petey said there are people who never leave Lumen. I don't know These are questions. at this point. Don't, These are you don't questions. need to give me questions. I have enough. Uh, yeah, cut to Helly, who has the map. She's clearly looked in Mark's drawer. Mark sees it and rushes toward her, asking her to put it away. She starts walking. Mark goes over to grab it uh, from her. And, of course, Dylan pops his inquisitive head up. Mm-hmm. I thought we weren't supposed to make maps. We're not. I did not. It's something I found. I think Petey made it. Dylan immediately questions that he didn't turn it in. He's like, oh, so you didn't turn it in, huh? Mark sort of exhales. He says, you're such a hypocrite. This is this is Helly. You're such a hypocrite. Lecturing me on following the rules. Mark says he wasn't trying to lecture her. He was trying to keep her out of the break room. And I actually wrote my notes, which I believe is true. Because I do. I, I, I don't think he's trying to lecture her. I think he's like, we're not going to win. At mm-hmm. least right, not right now. Like if, if you you can find a life here by not trying to run your run your head into a wall every other day. We're not going to win if we fight back. So let's just path of least resistance. Dylan comments that he can't believe Petey was a mapper. I love that he's got a phrase for that. Mm-hmm. And he has to see it. Helly hands it over. He's got its he's wellness management perpetuity wellness. Uh, look at this. It, it must have taken him weeks. He says, which which is funny to me. It's like I don't know that that map would have taken him weeks to draw. Maybe it took him weeks. To, to, map out. to map out because as we've seen you don't go to wellness that often um it, you don't go to OD that often so to like to be able to get away from the cubes to go to those places probably did take a long time it's interesting too that he notes this is everywhere we know of so there is a certain element of understanding of the ground floor that they have or the severed floor, whatever, whatever we call it. they call it the severed floor right or severed floor like yeah mm-hmm. so they have a certain element of knowledge not necessarily where everything is but of what is down here whether they know about well as you see the houses the giant mine thing what was the coil the coil of doom that thing probably not but at least the departments those they're familiar with yeah she asked a very reasonable question why aren't we allowed to make maps mark says it's an egan rule so spencer egan rule coming up okay you can write it down I've got it written down already because I adhere to these rules, Mr. Lee. All right, uh, well, then say it. Render not my creation in miniature. That's uh, a, that sounds a little like um, like a law, right? Like a like like that's that's a part of that. Hundred percent. That's hundred percent what I was thinking of. Like it was the you know Islamic prohibitions on you know depict depicting uh, depicting Muhammad. It resonated very much in that kind of category. Yeah. She asked why S- they don't certain elements of Islamic depiction. They don't have an answer. Uh, Dylan points to a section on the map, ask what the fuck it is. Hilly says it's houses, or at least it looks like it. Yeah, exactly, because there are random, these are random board doodles. Hilly, ding, 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 says that maybe they're on the outside, and maybe Petey found a way to get to them. Huh, interesting. It's a theory, not the one I'm going with. 
I think I, I think Petey would have mentioned that if, in terms of what even what little things he told Bark at this point. Uh, what do you wait a second? Hold on. He says they're talking about the houses here, and Helly says that maybe the houses are on the outside, and maybe Petey found a way to get to the houses. I think he did. I think he visited Mark. Well, yes, but I don't assume that it was because he escaped through the severed floor. I assume he just didn't come back to the severed floor one day. Oh, I I, I assume that he he is like when he reintegrated because we, we we established like through some mm-hmm. of the dialogue that there were a couple weeks there where he was reintegrated but still going to work. I, very, very much so, but I I'm at least from what I've seen so far not assuming that he found a way to get out of the severed floor from the severed floor. I was just assuming that he was mapping the severed floor and then one day he assumed the game was up and so he just didn't come back to work that day and oh, otherwise ran. Right. So we're the, where we're where we're we're hung up here is we have a different interpretation of PD found a way to get to them. You're thinking what she's saying is he found a way to leave the severed floor and get there. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that like she that she maybe oh. mean, maybe meaning that more broadly. Oh. Like PD found a way this is metaphorical. To remember things on the outside, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, I understand. I think that is true. Mark asks why they why would there would be a map of the severed floor, and she doesn't really have an answer. Um, she just tells him he he doesn't know, which is interesting. He's like he's like why would there be a map of the severed floor? And she's like, you you don't know. Mark says it's it's not a thing. And Helly says clearly, Petey was trying to tell Mark something, and Mark just goes, uh, no, Helly, with this, go lick a boot, Mark. <laughs> boot licker. This is this is a perfectly fair thing to throw in Mark's face right now. It's a strange insult, though. I mean, calling somebody a bootlicker. Sure, 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 look at you, Team Helly over here. Uh, it's a, it's in, an, in the moment from her perspective. It, yeah, I mean, I, calling somebody a bootlicker is interesting. I don't know that I've ever heard the phrase ever in my life, go lick a boot. I've never heard it expressed that way, but I kind of enjoyed it because it immediately put to mind, oh, bootlicker, well done. Mark just sort of smirks, looks over at Dylan, who seems maybe impressed with Helly. He seems a little impressed with Helly. Dylan offers his snark. It's it, it's how he it's the closest he ever gets to disloyalty. He would never go that far in terms of just straight up insulting somebody else like that. At least from what we've seen seen of him to date. So seeing Helly just engage in what is a utterly direct, completely unmasked act of rebellion. That this is impressive. This is. Helly continually does things that I believe the other ones aren't capable of, and whether that is just an element of her personality, or whether she's effectively coded differently or incorrectly, I don't know. But the rest of them seem to view what she does in any given moment is entirely foreign. She says, you're more loyal to this place than to your friend. Mark then gets real and says, I'm loyal to how it felt around here before you showed up. This and that is the was point I was making earlier. The point you were making, yeah. She says... Yeah, what you mean when Petey was here, mm-hmm. which I think is an mm-hmm. interesting, interesting comeback from her, right? She's like, yes. "Oh, you're you're loyal to when Petey was here, so then why aren't you like loyal to his memory, loyal to him, that sort of stuff, right?" And he says they could have fun and work without the whole goddamn department imploding. And she says the work is bullshit. Spencer agrees. Here I put in parentheses. Spencer does agree that the work is bullshit. This this is what I think so far, unless we're. Not understanding it, but the work is seemingly obviously bullshit. Minesweeper has more relevance than what they seem to be doing. Sincere, let me explain to you, like Mark, okay? All right, let me explain. I, I, I want to hear it. Come on, true believer. The work is mysterious and important. 
we deal with the uncertainty it brings us in the way that Kier would have wanted together as a family. And she <laughs> made the say, point. Me, this is my yeah, kind of line yeah, here. Response. Yeah. Someone just gave me a corporate culture line. We can be a work family together. To which both Helly and I say in response, I could not, with a razor to my throat, be less interested in being your family. Yeah, God it's interesting. Family. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and then she says, your best friend left this for you and you don't give a shit. Yeah. You know, I made the point last episode and I think it still holds that I think Helly, Helly likes Mark. If that's romantic or not, I think that's too, maybe a little too early to know. Sure. But I but I do think she likes him, and I think that she cuts him deeper than anyone else because of it. Yeah, I think he likes her too, whatever that may be, whatever it may portend. At least right now, they enjoy each other. And to have her say lines like that to him that cut very much to the core, not a little bit because he knows that there's a certain element of truth to them that's trying to fight it off right now, makes them resonate all the, all the more. He grabs it out of her hand and walks off. Dylan is watching. Mark then takes... The map to the shredder and says, you're right. I don't give a shit. And shreds it. He fucking this, shreds it. This shocked me. I, 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 there wasn't an audible gasp, but there was all the setup for it in terms of just, I was not expecting that. It shocked her too. She went, Mark. Like she, woo. And he said, there, it's gone. Thank you, Helly. Now we can get back to work. And he just stares at her. This was a, this was a, an immediate reaction from her really hurting his feelings when she said the last line, I think. Mm-hmm. It really cut, like you said. And, and I think he said, okay, well, fuck it then. Like he, get, he got a case of the fuck-its, basically. Have we ever, to, to date, seen Mark angry on the lumen floor? We've seen some emotions out of him. No, this is the first time but I think angry. I, I very much agree. I, I, it was, I was wondering what emotional range any Mark was capable of. And I don't think I was expecting anger. Well, the closest we've gotten was that kind of anger born from fear of when he said that he threatened Petey when he first came in. But I don't think we ever got to the level, and he never implied that he, like, punched or hit or actually did anything. It was just more like, you know, fight or flight kind of response. This is just straight up, no, I'm just pissed at you for what you just said right now, and I'm going to act out because of it. Irv shouts, Mark, it's an emergency. Irv takes him to the conference room, and in the chair is the book. The you, it's you are. It's interesting they don't bring Helly. She probably she, refused to come at that point, is my guess. She wanted, wanted, wanted to be alone, away from the three of them right there. Because it's the three of them clustered around. This, I, I was not expecting Rickham to be the prophet. Wasn't expecting that. Was not expecting him to be Karl Marx of this inner work universe. But here we are. Irv is telling Mark, well, look, hey. It's like that old uh, Eddie Murphy joke, right? Like if you uh, if you're starving and somebody throws you a cracker, like it's the best fucking cracker you've ever had in your whole life. Like they're starving for knowledge. They're starving for something else, for uh, different points of view, from other things to occupy their brain. And so the Rickon book is going to work because because they're in this dearth of information. Have you ever seen the old movie The Gods Must Be Crazy? No. Uh, it, it's a book about like. Um, it, it's some very much isolated tribesmen, I think, in the Kalahari Desert around about there. And somebody flying over drops a Coke bottle into their otherwise, you know, very much isolated community. There's all the resources they need and there's nothing that's, you know, unique or separate from it. And as a result, it completely destabilizes their community from this degree of outside influence. This book, same potential effect. And I think we see by the by, throughout this episode, it definitely has that potential. Yeah. 
um, Irv is telling Mark that he was just going to get Mr. Milchick, but he thought it best not to break the chain of command. Dylan, it's just raining contraband today. <laughs> Irving, <laughs> what, do what do you mean? It doesn't matter. Mark then asked him if they've ever seen anything like this before. Irv, passage 31, page 100. Be content in my words and dally not in the scholastic pursuits of lesser men. This was screaming biblical to me because you know, you know, I think everybody knows that one person that can not only quote the Bible, they can quote the exact the exact passage and verse, whatever they need to as well. Him saying the passage and page very much hearkened to that in my mind. All right, so if you have somebody in your life who does that, it's like Proverbs thirty one forty two, mm-hmm. be not do thus, this does like who does that. Uh, if they annoy you, if they don't annoy you, great. Then just keep hanging out with them. It's all good. But mm-hmm. if they annoy you, check them. Check them. Because sometimes they're wrong. It's not every time. <laughs> some of these people really oh, do God. Know. Some of these people really do know. But if you pull a Bible out, sometimes you can you can catch them. Sometimes you can catch a mistake. If, I keep a getting in my back pocket for just that scenario. Uh, Mark says he knows. No book except the handbook. Mark picks it up. Irv asks him what he's doing. Dylan tries to give a little commentary about what's going on in Mark's brain. His ego is pissed because Helly called him out for bootlicking. And Mark says his ego is fine. He's just trying to, damn, Mark, what is this? They see the note. They see the note, Spencer. I, 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 when, when, when Mark, the moment Mark grabbed the book, I went, <gasps> did Rick and write a message? Did Rick and Mike write a message did. to Mark? What destabilizing effect will this have? To Mark, intrepid cartographer of the mind, Rick and I love how ambiguous it is. I love how delightfully subject to interpretation that line is. That gives them nothing specific. It gives them nothing like, you know, happy birthday or anything else like that. It's a delightfully, it's an ambiguously poetic way of expressing the point that they'll be able to run with when it comes to interpreting it. Irv urgently asks what this is. Dylan guesses that it might be another PD message. Like PD might have planted it. He wants Mark to flip through to see if his name is anywhere. <laughs> Look through and see if my name is there. Irv says, I bet it's a loyalty test. Remember the spicy candy? In my what? notes, all caps, I need to know what the spicy candy incident was now. I think we just found out that the, Mil- the Milchick likes Red Hots. He left, he left some of those just laying around, and the, therefore the, the universe was, again, knocked off its axis. It's like an atomic fireball. He just left, like, fell out of his pocket somewhere. 100%, yeah. That, that, it, again, it doesn't take much. They have nothing. They have packages with just, say, meat in their vending machine. Any degree of, of the outside world could just completely knock them off their rocker. Mark says he's going to turn it into Milchick. Dylan, what? Why? It's booty. It's booty with your name on it. Irv says, excellent decision, Mark. This is an idolatrous text that should be brought to him immediately. Cut back to Helly. Who's at her cube? All the other folks are gone. She stands up, walks over to the coffee machine. She opens it up, look inside, and sees something. You, All right. You want to talk about it now? Did everybody else know this was here? This is a... Why the hell is this here? Unless... They should not be capable of what Helly is doing right now. This is an obvious weapon. This is a straight-up paper slicer with a giant-ass blade the way paper slicers do. Why on earth would Lumen allow something like that, anything more dangerous than a stapler, to be on this floor? Unless they have no reason to be concerned that employees could at all do what Helly does here. This is weird. But wasn't it in the copier? It is in, in in the lower drawer, like, below the copy, where you would otherwise be storing, like, paper or something else. Why does she even know to go there? I, I think she was trying to, uh, to to restock the paper and look to the wrong drawer is how I took that. Um, and she found something much more useful to her purposes, so she I'm, believes. I'm going to guess that 
like when you have if you are if you're if you're fucking caesar milan right and you can train dogs really well and you like you have all the confidence in the world that you can train dogs mm-hmm. you probably don't wear gloves that often because you're just sure that you got these dogs in tow and every once in a while you catch a heli that just will not be broken she's the horse that will not be broken she's gonna <laughs> kick anyone off that gets on her and i think i honestly think it's like it was overconfidence on milchik's part he's he, these people are broke the innies are broken mm-hmm. he doesn't have to worry about them doing things like this they've never experienced a heli before there's been comments about how heli, heli is outside the norm of what they're used to 100 i i just don't think they ever conceived that an innie would be capable of this i absolutely 100 percent agree and i find that fascinating how little control they actually have because this entire universe is built around the idea that they are an absolute 100 percent you know, soup to nuts, control over this world. And the more time we spend with it, we, the more we see that that is an inherent fiction, unless, again, everything is just an experiment and all of this is intentional, even the destabilizing elements. Yeah, it's it's that, that back to some song in Ice and Fire, right? What is mm-hmm. power? But it's a shadow, it's a trick on the wall, right? Like, yep. uh, or, or, Power is power, right? Like the fucking dog, if the dogs ever turned on Caesar Milan, he'd be toast. Every horse ever could have kicked a person off and killed them, but Mm -hmm. they're broken, right? They, they, these animals are broken and that's how the power structure works, right? Heli will not be broken. And that's kind of an, uh, in a, in a way, like, you know, you've posited that this might be like, almost like lab rats, that this is all a experiment. Like let's, so let's go with that for a second. Sure. If that's the case, isn't Heli the more interesting case than Marques or Dylan or Irvin or any of the rest of them? She's the more interesting one. Well, every one of them is given their own little quirk, which could very much be intentional. Their own they, what they represent. Mark's the one is the favored child. What effect does that have on the universe? Irving is just the utterly loyal old employee. What does the effect does that have on everyone else? Dylan's the hard worker, but otherwise sarcastic and only cares about the perks. How does that affect the experiment? Then you throw in Heli of where, oh no, straight up, she's just an anarchist. She will not, by any terms, by any degree of negotiation, ever tolerate this world. What effect is that going to have on the functioning of this department? That's experimentally fascinating. I, I find her to be more interesting than Mark. And I know that Mark seems to be the chosen one. He got the special prize. He's the next in line. Miss Coble, I, I got to say, Spencer, didn't see it the first time. You kind of convinced me she wants to fuck him. I, I kind of believe that. I think there's some little romantic thing there. But Heli is the fascinating one because she just what? won't be broken. Heli has all the effect of like making a giant city in SimCity and then turning on disasters just to see it burn. And man, is that always fun to do. And that is what Heli's doing here. On the walk back, Dylan is asking Irv about OND. So what's her space like? Stalactic? Stalactites and shit. Stalactites and just, shit. Just a cave down there. <laughs> yes, yeah, stalactites. And Did shit. you spelunk to go down there? <laughs> More than you know. Irv, hi. <laughs> look at you. Oh, Sorry. Look Sorry. at that. I love when I love when Spencer's the color guy. Irv asks. Uh, no, no. Bert has the right. Has the right. He says, "Got a nice place." He understands the spirits of Lumen. They walk back, and Heli is going into Kobol's office. She has on her hand under a paper cutter, and it's one of those old school, really large paper cutters. Oh yeah. I had, you know, well, we well, had, can slice through like five hundred pages if you really want to. Yeah, we had one of those in I think my elementary school. There was like this huge, like sign, "Do not touch." You know, it was like in the back of the library. Yeah. We weren't allowed to touch it without special approval or whatever. 
Those are the kind of where, you know, everybody warns you, be careful, you might actually cut off your hand. You look at that thing and go, no, someone's actually lost their hand to that thing. I believe it. No one needs, I don't need any of the kinds of, like, myths of O&D revolt. That's a hand cutter. That's what that does. Yeah, it's, uh, (laughs) so she's telling them, um. I want a camera and I want it now. Milchik is behind her, immediately apologizing for Heli. I have a question for you. Was he... When he was saying, I apologize to Koble, at that point, he was just apologizing that she burst in. He didn't even know what she was doing at this point, right? I don't think Kelly like gave him an opportunity. I think she was like, I'm going to Koble now. I'm going to Koble now or I'm going to lose some fingers. You're getting out of my way now, aren't you? I, I don't think like they had a discussion and now it's gone up the committee. I think she just forced her way in. And he's apologizing for this breach of etiquette and loss of control. Koble says, what is happening here? Ellie says, what is happening is you're going to give me a video camera so I can make take a resignation uh, tape a resignation to my Audi right fucking now, or you're going to have to explain to her why she's missing four fingers. Kobo is clearly trying to escalate. She's got her hand up in that de-escalating way of like, yeah. I need Shh. you to... Like, like you said, like a, you know, a, a horse you're trying to break. Shh. Uh, calm. Like I, was doing, like I was doing at the beginning of the episode, trying to calm everybody the, down. The horse whispering kind of things. This Philly don't want to play. No, she's she's going to buck. Okay, uh, let's just... Heli slams the thing on the desk, sort of scaring Kobo, it seems, and says... It's Cobell, right? Cobell, do I look like I'm fucking around right now? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. And she goes, no, no, you do not. Mark comes in clearly behind. Cobell says, hi, Mark. I'm just catching up with your trainer. <laughs> I uh, love her sarcasm associated with this. <laughs> Mr. Milchick, could you get the video camera, please? So they do this thing, Spencer. They fucking do it. They do They're it. They're scared of they- her. They are scared of her. I also think they're absolutely certain what the outcome is going to be anyway. Yes. Well, they. I, well, what we learn is that the resignations request have been going to Heli's Howdy. So At they already know the answer. They already know it. Certainly this one has. Yeah, they've been going to Heli because mm. the, the, the the comments that Heli's Howdy makes, right? So they set the thing up, and uh, when they do, she finally sets the paper cutter down, and it looks like Milchik is really recording. Hey, that's all we get. Then we see Heli walking what? down the hallway with everyone else in tow. I always have kind of mixed feelings of when they don't show us the scene. I thought this was honestly more effective, that they just... They start with the hay, and then they cut right away to the effect afterwards. I didn't need to see it. I knew I, I, I was able to express internally what she said in a way I didn't find disruptive. Yeah. So to, um, there are shows that do that rely on that that too much, mm-hmm. and it seems like lazy writing where they just don't want to have to write out the speech. This I think is more what you described, which is you had a jam packed episode. You, it, it had a really good, quick pace, which, mm-hmm. um, and they didn't want to bog it down with a two-paragraph thing from Heli, which we knew she, what she was going to say anyway, which is, get me the fuck out of here. And, and it would have interfered with the, other, with the delightful pacing we otherwise get of just the, there, she doesn't, there is no great speech. There is no meaningful statement. There is no changing the world. There is, okay, here's your moment. Now we go to the elevator. Now you're back from the elevator. It's meant to be futile. It's meant to be pointless. It's meant to be utterly just, not even just unsuccessful, but just almost annoying act of revolt in terms of what effect it has. So giving her otherwise the opportunity to make a big speech, it would have disrupted otherwise what they're going for there. Yeah, I think we agree here. So she says, well, boss, I guess this is the part where I should go to hell, except you're already here. Hell of a line. She gets in the elevator. I was never sorry. So when she drops the never sorry, I was never sorry. She's what? 99% 99% sure she's never coming back. She's 99% sure this is over, that she'll never have consciousness again in this in this version. This is the kind of person that, you know, says they quit from a job while twirling sparklers and doing an interpretive dance level of done. 
she is out the door and content that the aspect of her life and actually, <laughs> really, her life in general is over. And the level of deflating disappointment that occurs here a half second later where she come, where the doors reopen and she has a different disc in her hands, oh, thing of beauty. What do you think about her, like, dogged determination to basically die? To, like, never have that consciousness again? To, like, it, go up the not, elevator and never turn on again? It is not a feeling I have ever had, nor do I think even put into that universe I would have. It is a foreign concept to me to be that utterly determined to have a life under your own terms to the point of being willing to end it for the sake of not otherwise giving up that freedom. I'll tell you this. Big fan of life over here. I'm a yeah. big, big fan of life. Love living. Oh, uh, so. I'm, I'm all about the living. With I, life, this, there is hope. If, if this happened to me, I would be I would be in a fucking twist. I would be twisted all up. I'd be in a pretzel because... I would not be I would not be excited to turn it off and never come back. Like I'd be like, okay, well, let's just ride this straight thing there out. with you. I would I would not be beating the door down to quit. I would not be doing that. I'd be trying to figure something else out, other ways to do things like take naps or have fun or something. But I would not be breaking the door down to quit. I, I would wonder how long before I basically decide, you know what? Fuck my Audi. I'm taking over this ship. Sure. I, I, I'm getting out of here. I'm finding a way to put him down in purgatory. We get first person Ellie. She has a recording in her hand, a separate recording in the elevator open back up. Same people are standing there. She seems disappointed. Here's Here it is. And uh, we do get this one. And I'm, I'm going to read it. I read it and then let's comment on it. Helly, I watched your video asking that I resign. This is Helly's Audi talking to Helly's Innie. Mm-hmm. I also received and responded to your previous requests. I assumed that would resolve the issue. But now Ms. Kobold tells me, says you threatened to cut off your fingers. I understand that you're unhappy with the life you've been giving, but you know, eventually we all have to accept reality. So here it is. I am a person. You are not. I make the decisions. You do not. And if you ever do anything to my fingers, know that I will keep you alive long enough to horribly regret that. Your resignation request is denied. Turn it off. Jesus Christ. Woo. There are many things that I could have expected that were going to happen here in terms of the message coming from Audi Helly. I was never expecting, assuming that what she was told was accurate, at least the data points we get from here, but the example she offers are perfectly accurate. I was never expecting her to be fully in the know and a true believer and completely indifferent to the plight of her innie. This is a level of inhumanity, and I say that with full understanding of the meaning, and I'm going for it that I did not expect out of this character that we otherwise have only had a brief couple moments of meeting. If I had this level of information, both from a self-preservation standpoint, but also just a human concern standpoint, I can't imagine ever, ever recording a tape like this so long as, again, the information that I'm being provided is accurate. It's outside the pale. I think it tells us a couple things. One is that Heli is a let's say rabid dogged dogmatic believer in the severance procedure and Which, that severed that the and the and the ethical um she's a, she's fine with the ethical implications of that like mm-hmm. as much as those kids who are standing on the street who are yelling at drunk mark saying you know this this is terrible as much as they are on one side of this issue she is on the other 
because you don't you don't say this unless you have already drank the Kool-Aid Come about to terms the severance thing. And you believe in the severance procedure, you think it's a good thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because like I don't even think Audi Mark Audi Mark is not going to quit. What but he's we, not gonna say this to any Mark. This is no. unbelievable that she says, I am a person you are not, which by the way, um, Spencer, busy man. You're not gonna get like a lot of Spencer time during the week. So I try to like pick it pick and choose my text. Spencer, what did I text you? The like the one text I sent you in the last four days? Which one you made? Tell me. I am a person. You are not. I sent him yes, one, you qu- sent that one to me quote I, for you. <laughs> I had one quote for you. I, I, I try to take up too much of your time. You Busy brought man. me right back to it with that but line. I'm gonna <laughs> I felt like that was the one you had to hear. I mean, because to me, that was, the, that was the jaw drop moment of the episode. Yes, there are other big moments of this episode. But when I heard that, I thought, all bets are fucking off. Uh, it's our winner line of the episode. Just say it now. It has to be just, just the utter ground-shaking effect that it has in terms of the, uh, the rest of what we've seen. This ties back to one of the things that we commented on. I can't remember whether it was you or I that brought it up. Of when We saw Heli as the Audi when she, before she got the severance procedure done. She said various things and interacted in a way that almost implied that she was either an existing employee or had some existing connection to the Lumen organization. That is now provided a massive bit of additional evidence in terms of how she responds here. Because I very much fundamentally agree with that he expressed it purposely. Only a zealot would offer this kind of statement. Only a absolute dyed-in-the-wool, will-murder-for-the-cause level of believer would say things like this in response to this kind of thing. And it gets quiet as Heli sits there taking it in. Mark, Irv, and Dylan are all watching. I got a distinct impression from at least Mark and Dylan that they were really, really sad that Heli had to watch that. Like the way yeah. that the actors held that, like the faces and the, and the body language, they were completely deflated. They were looking at her. They were sad for her. I, I, fun, fundamentally, 100%, we've seen how they've, particularly uh, Dylan has built up his Audi in terms of what they expect out of them to have what otherwise is like a mythical, even godlike figure to them be sullied in this way before their eyes to, you know, like Heli in particular, their heart's bleeding right now. Uh, and continuing with our theory that there is at least one writer in the writer's room that has just had enough of insufferable, really hard, far leftist people like and I'm really not trying to like be like um, uh, pointed or mean to any particular like people we, we, we who might identify as leftist. I am talking I'm talking about the, the the fucking Rickens of the world. There is clearly a writer on this writer staff that doesn't like those people because we cut at home and he he is reading a website. Welcome your child into a, a world surrounded by nature. Mark seems what? to be quoting this. Then he has his own commentary. No thanks. And then we continue. And, and just just to be clear on this, you you both you and I are fairly liberal, but both you and yes. I know a Rickon. The yes. circles we run in, we all know a Rickon. They That's exist a, out there, people. I, I feel like language fails us, right? Because when I say liberal or leftist, I no, that's a very large umbrella and there's a very specific type of person I'm talking about. I just don't, I just don't have the word for it, but whatever that is, the fucking Rickon, there's somebody on this writing staff doesn't like this fucking guy. Scroll down to explore our rustic birthing chambers. I uh, did pause and got the the name of the place. Um, It's called Demonas, D-A-M-O-N-A-S. 
Mark asked a pertinent question. How much of this was Rickon's idea? 300% or 400%? (laughs) There lack lack numbers to embody the percent that this was completely Rickon's idea. Again, how did the two of them get together? I I asked you that question last episode. It seemed to be the the most... I, I listened back to the episode... And it seemed to be the thing that, that, that shocked you the most. Like, you you didn't have an answer for this. When I was like, ra- how did she get with Rickon? She's otherwise normal and fairly rational. Is she just fond of just how much he goes a thousand percent and everything he cares about and does? I don't know. We'll find out more. She kind of laughs and says, get all your snark out now. Or you're never going to earn your uncle badge. He says, you know, I think I might have some more snark in me. I'm kind of tired. She says she'll call him tomorrow. And he agrees. Cut to Mark getting a notification on his phone. It's from the Keir Chronicle. So the Cure Chronicle, this, I am, I'm so confused. So the town the is town of Cure. Cure. Yeah. This is the clearly the newspaper for the Cure the city. Cure. I would assume that that would be owned by Lumen, but the headline of this article makes me think this is probably not Lumen that's writing this. Severed Lumen worker dies after collapsing from unknown ailment. This is independent journalism, because I cannot picture that Kier would want this distributed about, no. particularly in their own paper. So it's confusing. It's like, I have to then back up and go, all right, well, if in the in the Kier City, if the Kier Chronicle isn't owned by Lumen, it, are we right in assuming that everything else is? Because we kind of did last episode. We assumed everything what? else in the city is owned by Lumen. We know we know the community that Mark lives in and that Harmony, Mrs. Uh, Ms. Goble, is, is owned by uh by Lumix. I think Mark mentioned that last episode or something. Uh, I'm assuming Pips is, too, just from the similar aesthetic design choices and the fact that they're giving coupons and turn basically yeah. at the coping store. Uh, but at least this, there's at least a few things that aren't... Hell, the fact that the whole man collective is able to protest in the city streets in town seems to suggest to a certain degree that they're not owning that kind of public place either. We see a picture of Petey. He looks around, uh, he being Mark, he looks at the door. We get a close-up of the box that presumably still has the cell phone buzzing in it. Next day at Lumen. Picture of the man on the wall. We see that picture of the man on the wall. I'm, I'm guessing this is maybe original Kier? Maybe I think it's is original that? Kier, yes. Mr. Grainer walks in. we got a Mr. Grainer sighting this episode. She talked to Miss Coble. Um, she's playing with the finger trap, which I found very funny. <laughs> this is one of the moments that implied, okay. What degree are they also some element of Severed too? if she's playing with the finger trap? That seemed symbolic at a minimum. See, you seemed very confident early on that Koble and Milchik not severed people. And I, I guess maybe it's something that like... It's I, festering. I kind of thought too, but like as we go, I'm like, ah, well, are there the, levels to this? Are like Yes, that's what, I'm, yeah. that's what I'm going into now. That there... It, it's turtles all the way up and all the way down, but uh, now I'm pondering more and more to what degree severance is involved at those other le- other other levels. Yeah. Uh, he asked her if she's heard from the board yet. She says, no. He says, Kilmer wasn't your fault. It certainly wasn't mine. They'll understand. It wasn't your fault, Harmony. Mr. Grainer, trying to reassure Harmony, who gives him this wonderfully warm line, motherly, if you want to hug, go to hell and find your mother. I'm with Grainer on that. Jesus! What? Where did that come from? She says, since PD reintegrated, he said, the board's never acknowledged reintegration. She says, we have to go get his his chip. Why? Why do they need his chip? Is it because it's proprietary information? Because they think it will survive the cremation process? Because if if they're just worried about... 
Is it because I they're... I mean, they... Is it because they want to find out what was done with respect to reintegration to his chip to explore that? Is it because it includes some data about what Petey even saw? Is there an aspect of Petey that's being preserved on this thing in his head? There's a lot I'm left to ponder when it comes to this, but you say you have an answer. Well, I'm not sure that they're worried about the IP because they the the option was let it lie and he'll be destroyed and burned up, yes. right? So I don't think they're worried about another company getting the chip. It, it seemed to me that the concern that this is Kobel going rogue. Mm-hmm. That uh, clearly, I mean, he's she's fucking drilling into a corpse's head at a funeral. Like she's gone rogue, and yes. she's doing it so that she can prove to the board that her reintegration really exists. She needs evidence of sure. it. So this is what she's doing. I think I'm with you. She says we, yeah. So the tense silence. Uh, follows that and Greener walks out. Kobol just sits there thinking. And here we go. We get them, Spencer. We get all of them. Are you ready? I've wrote. I've written them down, but Mr. Lee, no, I would no, love no, no, to no, hear no, them no, from no. you. I, if you've got them, go ahead. Vision. You said you wanted to know what they were. Vision. Verve. Wit. Cheer. Humility. Benevolence. Nimbleness. Probity. Wiles. All right, I now could, feel like I feel I understand Kier better than I ever could have before. If you could say one of those attributes best defines you, which one would you say? Which one hmm. would you volunteer for yourself? I will say verve. You cool. I'm going to say cheer. Cheer. I'm pretty. Very I try fair. to keep it. I try to keep fair. it positive. Um, she looks at a picture, maybe of the original Kier on her desk. It looks like a very old timey picture. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, I don't. I don't view Koble at least thus far as like. Yes, she's going rogue on this reintegration thing, but it doesn't seem like she's against the whole corporate structure of Lumen, right? This, that's cute. That's a cure image, right? That's. Yes. Uh, a, I mean, that's my guess. I don't know. She, I mean, she's she's thumbing the rosary beads. She's looking at the cross. This is a whole. This is a votive little artifact that she's got right here. Yeah, she's a true believer. She's I mean, just trying could, to be a more loyal employee to the cause rather than to the peer, to the person. I mean, but that's what I was getting at with trying to like parse out like, oh yeah, she's doing this like rogue action, but is she still under the sort of like Kool Aid drinking Lumen umbrella? Because I mean, we don't know that picture. This could be her dad or granddad or something like. Mm-hmm. But I, I mm-hmm. think it's Kier. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. Mark is there. He looks around, and then Miss Coble walks up. Mark, what are you doing here? So they're at the funeral. Yes. Mark, what are you doing here? And he, wonderful lie. You know, the news reports that he worked at Lumen, so I thought maybe I knew him. Well done, cover. sir. Well done. That was quick. What are you doing here? Because he, I mean, I, I, that's not a lie. If I was Mark, I would have prepared for because I wouldn't have expected to see Coble there or I, get to ask that question. It's per, it's utterly just perfect coverage. It's like you know, I saw Lumen, so I thought maybe you know some connection to some degree. That's unassailable. I thought when she, I, I as I was watching this episode the first time, I thought when she saw him, the whole cover would be fucked. I thought mm-hmm. she would then dig in, and he would have to admit that he knew PD outside of work, and it would all be fucked up. But no, I, he covered well. I think he covered well. I don't think she has any doubts about him, at least from what no. she, from what we see. Couple says he used to come by her shop. He adored her hibiscus wrap. Yeah, this is more, <laughs> more stuff from my hometown of Asheville. It's more hippie stuff here. Hibiscus wrap. Spencer, you don't know anything about that. 
what is a hibiscus wrap? Is it actually a, a, a wrap of hibiscus in it? Or is, there, is the wrap hibiscus, or is it hibiscus stuffed, stuffed inside? You're going to have to come to Nashville to find out. Uh, Do Mark I want Comets. to try it? Mark Comets. It's a small world. No real fucking, Real fucking small. Uh, real fucking small, Mark. Real small. Uh, uh-huh. It's unbelievable he would run into her here. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Come- can you believe that? It, it, I mean, it is just straining logic. The odds that are in play here that she would continually just show up in moments sitting around his life. I don't even know what to make of that. She says, poor, poor man. Well, on the upside, at least we both now have a date. Spencer, I think you're right. You shipped him early. I think you're right. I don't think he's remotely interested in her, but I think she's down. I think she's ready to go. I think she likes herself some Mark. Ah, we're not done yet before this episode's over, my friend. My goodness. She is a Mark fan. Mm -hmm. Uh, She points out the coffin. Says that Mark can go see him if he wants. He goes to the bathroom. He's trying to get away from her. Doesn't seem super interested in being her date. She reminds him the service is starting soon. Can't get out of the habit of bossing him around, it seems. Did you notice that? She's kind of bossing him around a little bit. It it bleeds through regardless of where they are. I have to ask you. Been to my share of funerals. Never been to a funeral with an open casket. Oh. Have you? Interesting. Almost every one. I'm from the South, man. I've been to my share of Southern funerals, but... Never, never one was the casket even present when the funeral was occurring. Uh, okay. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I would say I've been to like a couple of Midwestern funerals with my through through my through mm-hmm. my relationship with my wife, and those are usually uh, the person's not even there; they're in some crematorium getting burned up or something. But right. like, you know, and and it's the the funerals I'm used to as a kid, man, the funeral the coffin was always up there, and and it wasn't the whole time. But after the whole funeral proceedings was over, they would open the casket so that there could be a line. This is the Southern way, right? Line yeah. of people, you go up, you say goodbye to the body. And I guess that's a that's a way to do it. Too, I know it's traditional. Too, too ancient Egyptian for me, though. It always makes me uncomfortable even to see it. I don't know. There's maybe some finality to people to actually, when you actually see the body there, you go, okay, well, they really are gone. Like there's a there's a switch that flips for some people and then they say, okay, I can, I can accept this now maybe. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know the reason. It was never weird to me, and I have had many people just like kind of like what you in the vein you did. Except some people are much more um, uh, they voice this much more strongly. They find it to be very creepy. Yeah, for sure. It is not something I want, and I've made those terms clear. Someone comes up and orders a white wine. Um, uh, Mark is there uh, and says, "No, hold on." But I missed I missed a thing. Um, he walks into a different room, goes up and asks for a whiskey. They're only serving wine. You notice right. that? I notice that, yeah. He, like, yeah. he uses the excuse to go to the bathroom. and you Definite know. definite heavy drinker here. He wants the hard liquor at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They're only serving the wine. Yeah. Miss Coble walks up a, behind a woman in the casket, asks her if she was a friend. The woman who is younger slowly turns around. He's my dad. Does Miss Coble struggle how to human based on this conversation? Yeah, for sure. Well, we should... Hell, she struggles how to human with Mark. Yeah. She stands there and says, I su- she certainly struggled how to human with Mr. Grainer with the fucking go to hell and find your mother line. But, but in that case, she's acting, She she's doing her weird version of abusive boss. Here, she's just meant to be normal. It's part of her cover to be a little kooky, but still normal. And she can't pull that off. I guess, yeah. And I guess maybe the point I was making is like, even in the vein of if you're going to be like, weird abusive boss that's still an abnormally harsh line that's still socially awkward 
<laughs> Even Grainer was like, okay, come on. There are limits right now. There's only so much I want to take. Um, so he, she says he was my dad. She says, I guess you were close and everything. And the woman turns around and gives her a very angry look. I can never imagine saying that to somebody at a funeral. It's like, I guess oh, you were this, close. This, this was your dad? So, so you guys were like, you know, kind of close, I presume, right? It's like, the fuck? She seems like she's fishing for information. That's what yeah. that seems like. And it's, it's, it's pretty rude. And I think that's why she gets the look she gets. Someone comes up, orders a white wine. Mark is there. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't know. I'm. Uh, I, I'm. I don't know you. I'm, I'm Nina. She explains that she is Peter's ex-wife. Mark just gives her a look and says, "Oh yeah, sure. Sorry." She looks at him and says, "You're from Lumen." He doesn't she, say anything. She takes the glass and she says, "So you don't even know him at all." It's interesting. She presumes that you know. Oh well, you know, you must have known Mark, but we haven't met. And the fact that he shows no recognition to her name and just stares at her blankly then triggers. Oh, you actually just know nothing. You are effectively a blank when it comes to the, what's happening in this room right now. So we're assuming we're assuming Petey got divorced, lost custody of his daughter, decided to sever to get away from things for eight hours a day, right? That's that's what happened here, right? Uh, it, it's interesting, a question of timing. I'm, I'm curious to know how... I'm presuming that Petey's daughter's, what, in her like early 20s now or something? Yeah, 20, 23, let's say. Somewhere like that. So I don't know how long Petey was down there. Longer than Mark. And Mark was down there two years, three years? How long has Mark said he was been down there? Mark's been there two years. Two years. So let's say Petey was there four. So she could, that could have been when she was like 19, 18, 19. It, whether, whether there was custody issue or not, certainly the divorce seems to be implied to be the messed up event that led him oh, to want to cut off I, part of his life. I forget. I'm talking to a lawyer. Forget the word custody. He he wasn't around his daughter as much as yes. he wanted to be. Yeah. <laughs> you knew I was going to hit that. Come on. Yeah, I sorry. Have, I have to. <laughs> You're right. I, 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 I'm, I, I used I'm highlighting the, that term twice. I, I used the legal term when I, I just meant that he was he he wasn't around her as much as he wanted to, right? Yeah. And and I'm sure it seems like maybe the daughter wanted to be around him more, right? She's calling yeah. him on the cell phone, right? Um, maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> so PD, or, uh, Mark says, I just figured I knew him and... Hi, are you June? The ex-wife. It was nice to meet you. All caps. Mark? How would he know the Mark? name June? Mark, come on. Your cover, sir. Your cover. She's going to be asking that question. She didn't know. He could potentially was, write it off that he like, read it in the newspaper, but I don't know it would be there. And she I mean, is, I know the ex-wife's got a lot on her plate, right? Her, it's her ex-husband who's dead here. She's dealing with a lot. But come on. He just said, you, you, you just established that he's from Lumen. And then he goes, oh, you must be June. What? June, and June herself later on realizes that he's from Lumen, too. These are two people that could put two and two together of, how did he know that? There could be ways that he could know that, but I need to ask him to his face how he knew that. Cuts a mark in the pew. June sits behind him. So you knew my dad? Mark says, uh, yeah, at work. She says, oh, you're one of those. So mm-hmm. I think increasingly what we're seeing in this society is that the severance procedure is very controversial. Has there's connotations. Some, there's some people who are really heavy supporters of it. People are really not, don't support it. It's making, the, the ethical questions are making their way through Congress, apparently. We've heard that referenced. Mm-hmm. And it seems like as soon as Mark says that he's a severed employee, we saw it at the dinner party. We're seeing it here. People look at him differently. It's a it's a second class citizen type of thing, or at least maybe maybe not that, that that's not the right phrase, but at least people view them differently. Oh my gosh, you're one of those people. Like mm-hmm. that that's the terminology. Uh, be, be, 
I have nothing really to add to that. You're 100% accurate. It is very much, these are people that have now been troped by society due to what they represent and every element of political discourse that is now occurring around them. She drops this line. Do you ever think that maybe the best way to deal with a fucked up situation in your life isn't to shut your brain off half the time? Yes! Yes, I do! Yes, I agree! Scalding hot take for our guy Mark because he really thinks that that, he has said multiple times with a straight face that this is helping him. And he doesn't say it here. He says, I'm not exactly sure. I'm sorry. Progress. Honesty. Cut to a video of Pete, Petey and June playing Metallica together. This is the song Inner Sandman. Which Shout you, out Mariona Rivera. You, you, which you may not be able to predict about me. I adore this song. I always have. It's a great song. Oh, it's really good. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, yeah. I feel like people who don't even like it. First off, it's, a, it's the perfect song because of the lyrics and we're going to get there. But yes. it's also just like. If you're going to do a heavy metal song, this might be the, like, the heavy metal song with the highest Q rating in the country. Like a lot of non-heavy metal fans like this song. They've been exposed. Uh, let me see Miss Coble exiting. She's exiting at the back. So here are the lyrics. And I will, I will say the lyrics as I talk about the imagery that's on the screen. Spencer, stop me at any point to discuss. Sure. We're off to Never Neverland. Something's wrong. Shut the light, heavy thoughts tonight, and they aren't of Snow White. Dreams of war, dreams of liars, dreams of dragons, fire, and things that will fight. Sleep with one eye tight, gripping your pillow tight. As this plays, Miss Coble is uh, going to Petey's coffin. Accessing the coffin. She opens it. Or sleep with one eye open, gripping your pillow tight. Mm-hmm. As this plays, Miss Coble is going to Petey's coffin. She opens it. There's some sort of device that she presumably takes the chips out of his head with, right? She's brought a gun. I'm presuming dr- drill, drill mixed with magnet kind of thing to get this thing, get in to access it and then pull it out. I think it's probably the same thing that Milchik used to put the damn thing in heli. Like she probably snuck down to that floor and got it. Uh, well, not literally Milchik, but Milchik was there taking pictures. Well, yeah, yeah, when he was there. Yeah. Uh, Mark is listening to this. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Never mind that noise you heard. It's just the monster under your bread, under your bed, in your closet, in your head. Then yep. we hear the drilling of Miss Coble going into Petey's head. So it, nail, it, hammer, bang, bang, bang. It, it's, it's delightful, though, because it's the kind of thing of where since everybody knows the lyrics, everyone's now predicting the beats that it's going to hit with respect to the moment we're going to see. And it just adds to the anticipation. It's, it, it's so on the nose, it works better. Mark is getting heavy flashbacks and he gets up to leave. He walks to the hallway. He looks into the curtain. And there's a tense moment where you think, we think he might be seeing Miss Coble. But then we see that the casket is closed. So she's already finished. Coble comes up from behind him and says, Mark, sweetheart, are you all right? I'm so sorry. Mark tells her that this was a mistake and he has to go. She says she's going to go with him. He says that's not necessary, but she goes with him anyway. So mm-hmm. it's a date he cannot shake. Um, outside, she asks him if the funeral was just too sad. So they're back home now. Mark says something like that. By the way, if you ever try to talk to Spencer about like personal issues, this is the answer you get. Something like that. Let me tell you what this is, folks. Let me let me let me, let me do a little Mark. Let me do a little Mark splaining slash Spencer splaining. Something Go like on. that means, aka, please stop talking to me. Yes, that, that, <laughs> please that is, stop. That, that is the how people like me convey this conversation is over, and I hope you realize it soon. Spencer, you know you look like you're not having a good day. Yeah, something like that. I heard mm-hmm. I've heard that before. That Mark is giving her hard brush off vibes this entire fucking episode uh she offers to talk to him if he ever needs to talk and mark just says he's fine um the the other way southerners express we're done with the conversation southerner ever ever asked southern how they are and they just say fine no other information is being desired to convey right now 
Yeah. Oh, honey, I'm fine. Oh, uh, all right. Well, we're not going to have a real conversation. This is fun. That, that can um, mean anything between I just won the lottery and I'm dying. Sure. Yeah, anything yeah. in that range. Pretty, pretty big window. You drive a truck through that. He, he thanks her for being her funeral buddy today. He says, funeral buddy. Notice. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's She said date. date. She not said date. date. He said funeral buddy. They say yep. goodnight and they walk into their respective townhome. Mark unlocks the door, just stands there, but then he closes the door without going in. Then we see him driving around. He has somewhere else to go. He stops and he goes up to a tree and he touches the tree. He smiles and cries and cries. He puts his head on the tree and the just stands there. tape is still there. This is still a crime scene, practically. There are little memorials out front since. This is an open wound, not only to him, but still in the world. So this, The tree his wife died in terms of her car wreck. I give them a break on the, the timeline here because, like, police tape's not going to be so, up two so, years later. Yeah, th- th- this was a little bit wonky, but it's meant they just to be. Wanted you to, they wanted you to know what the tree was. So that was yes. a way of, of conveying that to the audience. Um, and, I think they could have done it with just the memorials. I don't think they needed the police tape. I would have I would have removed that from production. But I, I get what they were trying to do. It, the, the memorials were, were well done. Even, like, the... Um, uh, the guardrails, you can still see that they're bent out, whatever else, from where she right. went, went through damage. That, that was fun. The police tape, was that, that was a weird little addition. It just still hammers home that th- this is what this is. And credit to Adam Scott. He doesn't do much here, and he doesn't have to. And the conservation and just the emotional reaction we see on his face is effective. Yeah. Next morning, we see Lumen, and man, does it always look fucking empty. Mm-hmm. We see Cobalt slide and insert... In a plastic bag um, across the desk, and Milchik just looks at it. That's Petey? That's a, Petey. Interesting way to, to phrase that. It would, which, again, that put just connotation in my mind of, okay, what degree of like memory or like, you know, experiences is preserved on this? To what degree is there a backup copy that is now actually in that little chip of something that Petey experienced in the world? I don't know. How would I know? Everything's on the table now in this show. Milchik says, How did you? And she says, would you mind taking that up to diagnostics for me? Milchik just looks at her, knocks at the door. Uh, Milchik grabs the bag really quick. In comes Miss Casey. It's interesting that Miss he Milchik clearly wants to hide that bag from Miss Casey. So Miss Casey's not in on the reintegration talk. No, these two are going off script. Uh, they are hopeful for a good outcome, but in the moment they could be in a bit of trouble, and that's interesting. Cobalt says she wants Casey to run a special wellness session for Mark S. Milchik says, Mark S., what's the problem? Cobalt says, he just needs it. Trust me. What, mm-hmm. did, you, what did you make of that? Uh, the, the, I have two different ideas on this. One, it could, just, it could be a level of the concern, the thought that she has for Mark that we see out there in the real world. And so she's just wanting to do that kind of extra bit of caring directed at him because she got to spend time with him. It could even be tied to, to a certain degree that she saw, you know, he had an unpleasant time at the funeral. All one possible way of interpreting this. The fact, though, that she brought the fucking scented candle in there that is tied down to his wellness visit... This is a girl that's running an experiment about the subject of what out what what is outside comes inside. She's providing an outside element, an outside connection, because we know what effect smell has more than anything else on memory. And she is carefully, directly observing, by means of this little clay thing, what effect that has on it. So, I, option number one, maybe there's a certain element to it, but I'm leaning in strong option number two, that this is Mrs. Coble continuing her reintegration testing about... Okay, they tell us that these two worlds are entirely separate. 
What if it's not even just that you can turn it off and turn it on by some outside influence? What if there's a constant degree of bleed over that's actually going on? I think she's actually testing that here. Yeah, you've convinced me. I agree with you. Uh, I think that um, it seems like Koble is slowly, if not moderately, quickly losing faith in the severance procedure. That She's the severance being a scientist. I don't. Yeah, but I, I don't think you do those things unless you anticipate there can be a reaction, right? So Agreed. she's. I don't think she has a lot of faith in the efficacy of the severance procedure, and she's testing it. She's grabbed the the insert from PD. She's getting that looked at. She's doing this little experiment with Mark and the candle, and watching his reaction after a really emotional night the night before, where he clearly was. She was. She. She didn't. She may or may not have seen the tree thing, but I'm guessing she intuited that like having just lost his wife, being at a funeral was pretty difficult for him, right? Like. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, hundred percent. Well done. Cuts to Bert, who is uh, hanging some artwork, and Irv looks around the corner, takes a moment, then actually comes around the corner, does that little awkward like, should I go down? Nope, nope. All right, right, be cool, be cool. Here invites you to drink of his water. Bert looks up. Irving, Felicia said you'd be here. It's awful to say I don't care for that one. So they're looking at a picture of a guy kind of standing over a cliff that's over the water fountain. Bert says, no, it makes him nervous too. Bert is concerned the guy might slip. You know, it makes him easy to look at it. They both look at it together. Yeah, I, I got to say, I like the other one better. The other, the other painting that we saw, the one of Convalescence of Cure. I, I, I like that but that one better than this one. Okay, I won't send you this one. I'm going to send you Convalescence of Cure. That's the one you're getting. Thank, thank you. I appreciate your tailoring the art to me. You got it, Spencer L., uh, it was a thrill to have someone from MDR to come see us, to take an interest like you did. So if I embarrassed myself, you didn't, unless you did. Are you embarrassed? Bert says no, and Irving says no. He says, I have four more stops. Would MDR consider joining me? MDR would. Oh. Oh. What, one, a lot of these paintings are purposefully hearkening to like other real paintings in the world. I'm just going to send you a little picture right now of a painting this reminded me of. Do you see some similar elements in this? Let me open it up here. Yeah, for sure. What is this? This is by Caspar David Friedrich. It's a wanderer above the sea of fog. It's a, it's a painting that's always associated with romanticism. So it's one I'd seen in a course back in college. But it, makes it, me a little. Aren't there some? Co- <laughs> he might fall. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he kind of asked him on like a little date here by saying, "Would MDR consider joining me?" And he says, "MDR would." And then we cut to, they are like basically just chatting it up, right? Um, When we do a little jump cut. And Bird is saying, you're crazy. I wish I could nap. I think I sleep 15 hours a night up there. Mm -hmm. Spencer, you're right, right? Are you ready to do a victory lap that they don't leave? He's talking about his, his sleeping in the facility. Yes. Yes, I agree. You said I, that you said you thought that O and D were the people that PD was talking about that never leave. I thought know? I I was incorrect to think that it was you know just two of them. Now it is apparent there are a lot more than two down there. But this line seems to imply that no, this is their world down here below the bowels of the earth. But notice that PD still called those people severed. Yes, he did, and I we don't know about that. So could they be doing? Could they take a take a person? 
sever them, put them on the severed floor. They never leave, in effect, ending the life of the original person and just beginning anew, a different person. Yes. Yes. What, what would stop them in that regard? This is the only way they can return is by leaving. If they could never leave, this is the only life they have. Anyway, they're still they're still chatting it up. And uh, Bert says, it just means you're a party guy, Disco King. And he's talking about <laughs> Irvin napping a little bit. Irv says he can't be falling asleep. Who cares? The handbook cares. No workplace shall be repurposed for slumber. I know the handbook, old man. I'm more of a first guy, first edition guy. And this so is we talked about this conversation. Original word of Kier. And I shall whisper to ye dutifully through the ages and your noblest thoughts and epiphanies shall be my voice. You are my mouth, and through ye I shall ship on, uh, I shall uh, continue on when I am th- 10 centuries demise. So, wow. Uh, this Again. is, if, if, if Bert is who Bert says he is, if Bert is not of the Koble Milchik ilk, and this is some other thing, Talk about a true believer. He thinks that, he thinks Kier's talking to him beyond the grave, my friend. And in ways outside of the text, the, the, the flaws of mankind have bled into the works. It is the actual voice that still resonates through. You must find the word of God beyond the fallibility of men and recounting it. This is very much that kind of element of interpretation of faith. We could see a chapter of the book. Are you ready to, to hear the chapter of the book? I got as much of this text as I possibly could. This is Rickon's book we're talking about here? Oh, yeah. This tell is Rickon's book. Tell me the words of the, you know, the little red book, of the revolutionary that shall lead us on to overcome this the, is Mark the, the reading vials this of the, capitalism. Mark is reading this on the toilet. Chapter 9, The Quitting Bell. Oh, man, this really does have... This harkens back a little bit, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Quitting Bell. You need your job. You think you need your job, but I've lived abroad. Th- this guy sucks, by the way. But I've lived abroad as a vagrant abstaining from my own money to rely on the charity of strangers. Most were beggars themselves. So here's what this numbskull is doing. I'm telling you, the people, the, the, there's somebody on this writing staff doesn't yep. like these people. This guy goes abroad. He's got money, but instead he takes the money of other poor people. Have you ever heard, you ever heard the expression poverty tourism? Yeah. We this have a friend this, who does this. This is what this guy is doing. We got a friend who does this. He's he's doing it right now. He's in Europe right now as we speak. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> I didn't know what friend you were talking about, but now I understand. Yeah, he's doing it right now. Most were beggars themselves, yet they were happy. And so that summer was I. Your job needs you, not the other way around. Imagine, for instance, if our tragic concessions worker, so I guess this is previously referenced in other mm-hmm. parts of the text, whose name I have since learned is Alan Miller, awoke one day and instead of coming in for his shift, simply said no. What if, when someone asked him for lullabies, his answer was a firm and confident no? I imagine that's all I could get. Hey, it may not be high literature, but it's the only other text that this Mark has ever had. You know this is good. This, this is, I've been joking about through all this that this is, you know, the, the, this is the Communist Manifesto. It is, though. This is it is a little bit. It's, a, it's like, what if you just said no? What if you just stopped? You know, proletariat I, rises. Again, he never had a concept. Every now and then, you need someone else to express a concept that you otherwise lack, that you otherwise would have no exposure to, to unlock those kind of thoughts that are otherwise completely separated from you. And this book, this just self-indulgent exercise that Rickon has put into the world, 
is going to have, I think, that profound effect. Do I need to plant a book near you that's like chapter nine? Sometimes Canon is purchased by a large corporation. And even <laughs> when that happens, it's okay to still give it a try. If you'd like you to see me... You don't have to dump the old, the new canon just because you don't like a big corporation owning your fantasy literature. If you'd like to watch me burn that book on, on, on the Instagram page that I otherwise have never posted anything on. <laughs> That's me trying to plant something in your head. Hey, I don't know. Maybe Force Awakens isn't so bad. Uh, <laughs> we see uh, Marcus readings on the toilet. Bert uh, tells Irv, safe travels, MDR. Thanks, O&D. Uh, Bert walks into... OND and, and Irv walks out. We see Miss Casey call for Mark. We see Helly get up. She says, I'm going to go. Dylan, do it. Dylan says he's going to work up to the bell because he still thinks he can crush this thing tonight. She says, I hope you do. Dylan seems mildly invested in the work. He's like staying late to try to finish it. Dylan's here for the incentives. Sir, sir. Waffle, waffle party. party. Waffle, waffle party. party. What would you not do for a waffle party? See, again, it's something that on the face of it, it's easy to look, sort of laugh and mock. If all you get is... Meat. Whatever, whatever crap lunch that they give those people, and then that the snacks that are, we saw in the vending machine waffle party is a big deal, I, and I, that, I, it probably would be for me too. Hundred um, percent. She says, "See you soon." She walks out, and there's the there's the reveal. She has uh, an extension cord with her. Again, dear God, they need to do an audit of this floor to remove potentially lethal objects. Again, I just don't. They do, and I just don't think they've ever thought to do they, it before. They've never had a heli. They've gotten way too complacent when it comes to the world yes. they think they control. Dylan gets up and he walks over to Mark's cubicle, maybe. We see Helly walking with the extension cord. She also grabs a trash can. Dylan is looking through Mark's files and finds the book, The You You Are. And he says, I knew it. And what he's saying is, I knew Mark kept it. We see Mark and Miss Casey. Says that sometimes she asks people to sculpt how they are feeling out of clay. Spencer, question for you. It's just like a Mangum Talks like retreat exercise. Would you like to sculpt how you're feeling out of clay? No. Nope. 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 I didn't like arts and crafts at any stage of my school career, and it still remains true. I would not like to sculpt my feelings out of clay. I would like to just sit here and enjoy the ambiance for a minute. Thank you very much. So that's a no. Uh, th- yeah, that is a very <laughs> profound no. Yeah. Was, I think you said I, no seven times. <laughs> I, I, I have had a delightful relationship with my girlfriend now going on for 14 years. We have never had a ghost moment of like, you know, mixing our hands together with clay that's rotating on one of those wheels. That I'm, I'm good without the clay. Thank you very much. Mm, got it. Mark looks at her. No answer. Then we see Koble and she's at her desk. We hear... All right, Miss Casey gives Mark some clay. We see Irving, who is walking through the hallway. He turns around, turns around, he goes back. We see Helly get next to the elevator. Dylan, this is a just a wonderful sequence of events. I think it's one of the strongest, like maybe five minutes of television that I've seen in a really long time. It, it, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I liked the show before, but I, it reached another level here. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to explain what we see on the screen but spencer stopped me you know at will to talk about sure. what you want to i uh, see how get we see how get next to the elevator dylan is reading from the book chapter five destiny an acrostic poem experience by the acrostic poem experience acrostic? By the, i've never heard that word before I, I, I will look up what the word acrostic means because that is a new one <laughs> i am sure it means something like guttural from the fucking na- from nature from your soul 
No, it's it, it's a kind of poem. A poem or word puzzle or other composition in which certain letters in each line form a word or words. It's just describing what he's doing. Oh, okay. I, the, well, I was giving the, him more, more credit for being douchey than we, he was there. We were. Point. I assumed it was some it was some actual useful useful descriptive term. Here, no, it's disturbingly accurate. Yeah, and, and what we see is that he, he's the acrostic poem is um, down the vertical mm-hmm. axis is destiny, the word destiny. Um, we see Helly, then Irv walking around O and D. D is for, and every time I um, start with one of these, this is uh, Dylan reading to himself from the book. D is for dreaming, the start of it all. E is for energy, breaking down walls. We see Helly get into the elevator with the cord and the trash can. S is for stewardship of home and earth. Irv walks looks into the door and sees a large white room with a lot of people dressed like Bert, working with machines that are about chest high, and the room seems to stretch for a very long ways. Can you imagine what this does mentally to Irvin? Uh, this, you want to, we talked about true believers. When a true believer confronts something like this and is shattered in terms of their understanding of the world they thought they had assigned a certain element of control to, it ain't good. It ain't pretty. I'm gonna just look. Yeah. I, I want to see the pieces that remain of the man come next episode with respect to this because that that wasn't on the map. <laughs> that was how many? It's not even just dozens. There are like hundreds of people in this room that does not have a clear. Huge. It, this is an aircraft hangar that we have down here, all underground. Yeah, he just saw Jesus' bones, right? Yes. He just saw the proof that it all is not real, and. Notice that that what he so everything that we see so far on the severed floor and O and D has this like late nineteen eighties office park look. Yes. When he looks in that door, that looks like a laboratory. It looks modern. It looks very scientific. Yeah. And as he sees this, Dylan is saying. Reading from the book, we get these these words overlaid. T is for terror, which gives us more worth. So T uh-huh. is for terror, overlaid with Irving seeing that, which had to scare the shit out of him. We see Helly, who seems to be opening the top of the elevator at this point. I think we all kind of had an idea what Ellie was going to do. Tie the cord up. I is for I, which observe... I is for I. I is for I, Spencer. My English major wife is flipping a table somewhere. <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh, which observe us with love. We see Mark sculpting a tree. Most now, I, I realize that it's strange to say this in an episode where someone literally hangs himself, but this is the most powerful moment of the episode for me when he hangs. Because that this proves this is the proof, the geometric proof of what Petey said earlier, which is that he carries the pain with him down there. He just doesn't know where it is or what it is. Again, as you said, this ending is just such a beautifully threaded together composition. It's just so many different little threads that are all linked right now, all in, all framed around this, this delightfully appropriate poem. It's beautiful. It's so well done. Until in, meaning newness, rains down from above. Irvin walks out. We see a shot of Heli standing on the trash can in the elevator working on the ceiling. Mark sculpting the tree. And why? That's a question we didn't, we needn't now ponder for destiny friends shall deliver all yonder. We see Koble is watching Mark sculpt, so she has a camera in the wellness room. We see Irvin walking back. We see Mark talking to Helly over the cubicle. Ask her how how she is. She's good. She says good. And he says, seems like you're getting the hang of stuff. 
Hammer, nail, bam! I got the impression this gave her the idea. That's why we saw this. It could that's be. Why we saw the, that's why we it, saw this scene. They're setting it up as being like the last thought that goes through her head. And then her putting the noose around her neck, kicking the trash can out, episode goes black. Woo! Okay. I don't think she's dead. I'm, just, I'm, I'm offering my prediction right now for two-ish different reasons. One, storytelling. She's got too much left to do. There's too much left in terms of use of her characters. You said she's the delightfully destabilizing element. She's the most interesting little brat in this maze. I don't think she's dead, because otherwise it seems like it's a waste of you know, several Chekhov's gun and other resources when it comes to this. I don't. From just like a practical storytelling standpoint, I don't want to believe it. Option number two is also, a lot of films just have you do a short drop like that for The Hanging and you just die. This series seems, it's a weird thing to say, more realistic than that, that effectively she's going to have to suffocate and choke herself right now from that kind of short drop little effect. She, don't, she did not break her neck from jumping off a trash can. So there's a fair amount of time for people to find her. If they have any degree of cameras going, which they seem to do when it comes to the elevators, there's a chance that someone can be able to come in and intervene. Maybe even Irving, because he's walking down the halls right now, possibly heading in this direction. So I don't think she's dead. I think she's in a rough state. Expecting someone's going to intervene to save her here. I'm offering that prediction on the record. Maybe there's a degree of wishful thinking going here just because I'd really be disappointed if her character is exit right now. It'd be powerful. Add to just the utter horror of this episode and the show. But I expect that's not how she's going to go out. Okay. Um... Fair points. This isn't Jon Snow at the end of season five, right? Because, like, this has been four episodes. Yes. Helly has not told a complete story yet. No. You know, like, if, if you have a death at the end of season four, season five, and it's a cliffhanger, you really think the person might die because they kind of have wrapped up some of their arcs. Mm-hmm. That's a fair point about the storytelling aspect of this. It does look like she's alone. It does look like she just kicked the fucking can out, and a lot of people snap their neck. A lot of people snap their neck on the fall, right? So she, she might not even have a chance. It's not much of a fall. You need you need a longer drop than that to accomplish that. I don't know why I'm discussing that particular point right now, but having been a student of English history, the short drop is a very unpleasant way to go out, and that's what she seems like she set up for herself. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how far up she was. I don't know how much the actual drop was, or um, what you would need. Um, but that that is probably something that's crossing a lot of people's minds. Is oh, she did, did she break her neck on the drop? Um, okay, well that's Spencer's prediction. Helly, not dead, emphatically. Uh, okay, what else do you think of the episode? Any other concluding thoughts before we jump into our segments? I think it's the best episode so far of the season. I think you know, competing to a certain degree with episode one, just to the mystery it got from there. But now this is coupling the mystery with also just. Some progress of the plot in all kinds of interesting and fascinating ways. And some just the most beautiful scenes they've yet filmed on this show. From just quality cinematography, but also just so well blending in the other elements of the show. In terms of music, in terms of situations, in terms of how it's particularly depicted. This is just a very well-crafted episode of television in a way that... I can see why people that were somewhat out on the show from the first three episodes would come roaring back with this one coming out. Yeah, so you can see how I was like, how like I I'm very I'm rarely as confident as I was last episode, mm-hmm. right? Like a lot of because a lot of times I'm like, oh I don't know maybe they, maybe it'll get better, but like last episode I was like, hang in there, you'll, <laughs> you'll like the okay. next episode, promise, like what? trust I, me. 
uh, my parents have been diligently trying to avoid spoilers, but they would every now and then still offer like their one sentence comment on each episode. And the first three episodes were, Spencer, what the hell have you got us watching? I mean, I, I know I, 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 we, we like Lee's recommendations before, but this is just, I, I don't think this show is for me. Episode four. Okay, we're going to keep watching now. It's yeah. like in me on a dime. Yeah, it's, it's exactly what I experienced watching week by week. Is that we? Get, by the way, watching week by week at the end of this episode was a little tough waiting for the next week. And I'm sure I you're experiencing that now. Somehow, thank you. No, you're dealing with that too. You got to, but you get to watch the next episode, I guess, when we're done. Uh, we're done yes. recording. But um, yeah, I, I thought this was absolutely fantastic. It sucked me in. It sucked a lot of people in. It's a real turning point of the series. This episode, wonderful television in the last five minutes. Just fucking spectacular. Okay, do so you want to jump into best line of the episode? I got a few. Okay. Option one. Mark, how many times? Helly, 1,072. Oh! Uh, Bert, let not weakness live in your veins. Cherished workers, drown it inside you. An Irving finishing line. Rise up from your deathbed and sally forth. More perfect for the struggle. Rise up from your deathbed and sally forth is a fascinating message to convey to workers in an office setting, particularly when they can't leave. They, I wonder to what degree of symbolism or even literal is going into that. Uh, from, this, this is uh, from Helly here. You're more loyal to this place than to your friend. And then a second later, your best friend left this for you and you don't give a shit. Uh, mm. This is from Dylan if you need some comedy in this. What you gotta do is trick the machine by thinking about something you're not really sorry about. So like, I imagine, my, I imagine that my Audi has love made with a milf or two, which is obviously badass, but I do pity the husbands. Dylan, just write a book, please. I, why does Rickon get book deals and Dylan doesn't? I want this guy's concept of the universe to be put to the page. Obviously badass. Uh, be content in my words, and do not dally in the scholastic pursuits of lesser men. It's, I love that way of just saying, have no other gods before me. <laughs> Don't read any of their books. Mine is the sole word. Well, boss, I guess this is the part where I should tell you to go to hell. Except you're already here. Uh, and then a little bit late, this is from Audi Heli. But you know what? Eventually, we all have to accept reality. So here it is. I am a person. You are not. I make the decisions, and you do not. And it continues on from there. Dear God. Hmm. Um, and from uh, Koble, if you want a hug, go to hell and find your mother. Jesus Christ. Um, this is from June. I think we saw her name was June, PD's daughter. Uh, do you ever think that maybe the best way to deal with a fucked up situation in your life isn't to just shut off your brain for half the time? Yes. Uh, we, I, think, I think I've been expressing that point from the word go. Uh, and this is also from Bert, the original word of Kier, and I shall whisper to you dutifully through the ages, and your noblest thoughts and epiphanies shall be my voice. You are my mouth, and through ye I will whisper on when I am ten centuries demised. That's what I got. Well, no surprise to anyone here. Best sign of the episode, episode four of Severance is, I understand that you're unhappy with the life you've been given. But you know, eventually we all have to accept reality, so here it is. I am a person. You are not. I make the decisions. You do not. I can't cheer for that. I usually clap after best line of the episode. It's Cannot so cheer brutal. for that one. It's can't so brutal. It, it, it is just, it, it, it is, the, it, it is the, the soliloquy version of a death knell when it comes to Henry Helly's hopes for the universe. 
oh, and the and the, and this like how disappointed she has to be and like herself strangely like because mm-hmm. she feels like she knows her Audi she feels like she knows herself and then to have her Audi be so fundamentally different than what she understands about herself it has to be such a mind fuck of like am I a bad person like <laughs> I might be a bad Kay. person kind of like me watching foundation level. I'm like am I a bad person I, I like the empire <laughs> do, do, do I believe in an empire am I like a potential am I a potential loyal follower of despotism that's just waiting to happen what uh, yeah, I don't know how I don't know how she deals with it mentally. I mean, she and she's had she hasn't gone as far as Dylan, but she's expressed before. No, my Audi wouldn't do that. She's yeah. built up her Audi as being a good person that'll help save her, and now that's dead and gone. All right, let's do it. Let's have the difficult conversation. Who wins employee of the week for Lumen this week? Okay, I said I was offering two. I've already offered Dylan. He's he is their attack dog. He is their loyal guy that is willing to fight. He's, he's how in the wet fuck did you get here? Give us the directions in reverse. Staplers Akimbo willing to get the re- directions so he can launch an attack to prevent this from ever happening again and remove the threat. That is the guy you want in a foxhole. Plus the stories, plus the hardworking, plus all the incentives, plus getting a waffle party he'll probably share. I think he gets all those props and it should be recognized. Fallback plan with caveats, but Koble in terms of loyalty to the cause more than to the bosses. In terms of being willing to actually fulfill her duties as the observer of this experiment and subject it to testing, even requiring extracurriculars and going out and getting the material that she needs to actually put this to the test and analyze this in a way that her bosses aren't appropriately doing, that's a marker of a good employee in a way that management won't always recognize. So those are two good options, although I think you're coming at it from an anti-Lumen perspective, which is really, really upsetting here on the Lumen Radio podcast. I apologize, Mr. Lee. I'm sorry for what I am. If you're coming at it from who does the best job for Lumen this week, I'm going to go Bert. You're going Bert? Bert. I'm going Bert because Bert um, makes the connection with uh, the rest of the group, with our group, right? One could question if that was part of his job or not, if that if that if that is part of the experiment or whatever we think is going on here. He then is able to engage with Irving, get Irving to come visit him. He's also clearly doing something more than just hanging paintings. Uh, mm-hmm. There's something else going on back there that he's working hard with. And then we learn that the motherfucker never leaves. He stays there all the time. So for somebody who never leaves Lumen, who... I'm going to, let, let's just float the theory that he's one of these people that PD was talking about. You've been saying this for a couple episodes, that he is severed in some way, but never leaves. That's fucking dedication, my friend. Bert, employee of the week. Uh, the way, I will fight you on this only to one degree. An employee inherently implies a certain degree of finality. If a person can never leave, they are a slave, not an employee. Well then, then none of our other people can can, can take it either, right? Because they they never really leave. At least they have a concept of what the outside life might be. Yeah, they never really leave either. So I mean, I, I guess Cobble does. Cobble does. I don't really want a podcast where we have a we have a segment called Slave of the Week. I don't think we're gonna we're gonna do that. I don't think that's good marketing. Good call. Good just, call. Just let you know. 
PR. Uh, we're going to keep it employee of the week uh, and maybe expand the definition of employee for, the, for this one particular situation. It's like those contracts where there's definitions at the top and it's yes. a definition that you would not normally agree to, but you're going to have to use it for this. Yeah. That's how we're, that's how we're rolling. I'm with you. Uh, I understand. Okay. Well, uh, we had three different options there. We didn't agree this week. That's interesting. We didn't agree. Mm. Um, okay. I'm going to sit back. America's favorite segment. Spencer's got some questions. Optics and design what? What is going on here? Why are they have an aircraft hangar? Why are there hundreds of these people all roaming about in active duty, constantly sending things anywhere? This doesn't fit into anything that we've otherwise understood about what happens on the severance floor. This seems like they're engaged in actual productive duty. Are they effectively actually the maintenance team that's running the entire company from down below? Are these the Morlocks that are making society work? Are these guys in active operation or is everybody else just some degree of testing and doing utterly futile, meaningless work? And if that's the case, why the lie? Why? That's just the lie. How did this popular perception occur on the ground floor? Why is O&D perpetuating it? Is that part of their instructions? If these guys are down here all the time, maybe they have a certain degree of perspective that everybody else otherwise lacks. Do they have a concept of the world that is above them because they don't have any degree of severance attached to it? So much with respect to this. It's just, just, we talked about the stabilizing elements. I'm almost as stabilized as everybody's with respect to this revelation. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what effect it has on the broader world or what, what information we've currently gotten implies about what are they purposely, you know, cast as the rebels, cast as, you know, revolutionaries, people you can't trust. Is the, what, what was the emotional thing they were associated with, like betrayal or something? I, 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 I can't remember. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly. It's, it's something like that. Something yeah. negative. Is that so people don't want to investigate them so they don't find out about the fact that these guys are in, in legion and are running this thing? I don't know, but I've got lots of things to ponder. Uh, Those are definitely questions. Thank you. I appreciate that kind of commentary. Uh, the different voice behind the door. Helly, angry mumbly guy. Dylan, crying baby. To what degree are these tailored by Lumen itself, or to what degree these are only internal? As some example of madness. To what degree is their chip reading this and actually providing this directly into their consciousness? Is this white noise from the outside world? Is this something that their mind is producing to fill this void? Is this something that the chip is actually imposing upon them? I don't know, but the fact they're getting different experiences suggests some degree of either conscious or unconscious tailoring that's going to be the experience of the break room in a way that otherwise would previously appear to be entirely rote. Uh, we noted this, it's more of a comment, but the changed philosophy uh, on interacting with other people on the ground floor, the difference between uh, whether you're supposed to make maps uh, versus the cure philosophy, they want all the people to come together like a family, the whole render my, not my creation in miniature apparently being a more recent thing, because that's not something the cure seemed to have fully agreed with, or was something he said originally, but they're now interpreting it in ways that weren't actually originally intended, the idea that there's a first edition that people are aware of, why would they even be aware of that? How is Bert aware of that? Is that again suggesting that Bert has outside knowledge and what everybody else lacks, that he has a concept of the first edition? Because otherwise they wouldn't expose that to people versus the handbook that everybody else seems to be aware of. Why doesn't Irving seem more shocked about the idea that someone though has information about what the first and original edition is? I don't know. All of this is weird. Uh, yeah, we. I don't, I don't think we know if that was new information to Irving or not, that there was a first edition. I... He has built his life around the handbook. If there's actually, you know, a, 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 an original text beyond that, you think it would have come up to some degree. 
but I don't know. Maybe he deems that heretical. He, he's, a, he's, a, he's a New Testament guy. The Old Testament is forgotten, is for, forgotten words. Um, let's see here. Why do they have to get the chip? We pondered that already to a certain degree. I don't think I need to go into too much more here. I'm with you in terms of the interpretation that I feel like this is part of their own going away from otherwise the doctrine that they've been instructed to from up upon high. Why is Heli's Audi like that? We pondered that a bit in the episode. I'm very much adhering to the idea that she is a true believer in the outside world and that is reflecting in her otherwise completely callous actions. Why does it seem that they have so few jo employees doing jobs so broad when it comes to people like Milchik, when it comes to people like Kobel? There seems like there should be another apparatus here, but the only time we've seen anything resembling appropriate numbers now is an O and D, and we don't know what they're doing and why. Uh, taking something up to diagnostics, this did confirm that Mr. Milchik can operate outside of the severed floor. There are other departments that are monitoring these things, but what do they expect to happen up there? If they take this chip in, won't someone ask questions about where it came from? Or they, is Mr. Milchik so multi-talented that he now can hack this technology and find out more from it? I don't know. Maybe they've got a friend on the inside up there that they can actually get this out of. But otherwise, they've seemed to be playing this pretty close to the vest. So I'd be surprised if they have other subversive agents. Not subversive, but you know, people that are willing to do this kind of experimentation in a way that is going contrary to the, you know, the otherwise instructions they have. Sculpting the tree. Uh, dear God, uh, this is proving P's comment about he is indeed carrying the pain in here. And I'm left to ponder to what degree this is indeed an experiment by Kobel as to smell. The candle is there that she looted at his apartment. Maybe it wasn't as creepy as we thought. Maybe it still is. Uh, to what degree is that intentionally triggering a scent memory that is now hearkening through? Regardless, though, it very much proves PD's point. The chip can only do so much. The outside knowledge that they most desperately try to suppress is still here. It can still be accessed. It can influence actions even to the degree of painting an emotion that is very much firmly grounded in pain, but one that Mark doesn't fully understand. That is beautiful, that is fascinating, that is horrifying, that is any number of other emotions I can assign to it, but I can say that it leaves me all the more gripped when it comes to watching this episode for next week. You have to wonder if the sculpt your feelings thing came from Kobol, and if that's the first time that she's run this experiment like she did with Mark. It's interesting. She is so effectively a passive observer, we don't get much from her, but that's a fun point to point out. To what degree is she just rolling with it based on instructions and is otherwise quietly fascinated as to what's about to happen? All right. Any more questions this week? That's what I, that's what I got to focus on. Whew. All right, man. What an episode. We went a little long, but we, we, we needed to. Uh, this was a, this a was lot a going on. lot going on shortest, this episode. Shortest episode of the season, but it didn't feel like that. All right, we'll be back for next week. Spencer, any predictions for next week? Anything you want to see next week? Helly is not dead. Helly is not dead. I, this, this is the hill I'm willing to die on when it comes to this. I don't believe it. I don't think it's going to happen. And to what degree that is just purely a wing and a prayer hope. I'm not sure, but I'm committed to this. Helly is not dead. Did your girlfriend, I know you've talked about in the podcast that she's watching this with you. Did she offer a prediction on if Helly was dead or not? No, she did not, other than to agree with me when I expressed it angrily out loud that, yeah, well, narratively, it's probably the case she's still around. Okay. All right. Well, look, hey, man, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy going through this with you every week. I, I like watching people um, wake up on the 
conference room floor uh, table and and have to learn show. about this show and and learn week by week. It's an awful lot of fun. So thank thanks for doing the podcast with me, man. I look forward to talking to you. Next week, we will review episode five of season one of Severance. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe on whatever podcast platform that you're on, or you can go to mangumtalks.com, upper right-hand corner, click contact us and let us know what you're thinking. I read all that stuff. If you contact us on social, you can contact us on facebook.com slash mangumtalks or twitter.com at mangumtalks. Um, any of those ways of contacting us, I will read them. Um, I'll respond if you if you want a response. Uh, and try to interact a little bit with you and hear what you want out of the podcast, what you're enjoying, maybe what you don't like, all those types of things. I will filter them. I will provide Spencer with high-level notes. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll be back with you next week for episode five.